Welcome to Bond by Numbers, episode eight, movie number seven. We're here to talk about Casino Royale. This is Josh and Jeff in Ottawa, Canada, and Scott Bowman over in Scotland. Dumfries, Scotland. Dumfries, Scotland, to be precise. Yeah, thanks, Josh, for your intro. It is episode eight of Bond by Numbers, and we're doing Casino Royale today. It is a reboot, though, guys, what we're dealing with here. It is. It is a reboot, just like this show and so far. <laughs> what I think what we should, I'm probably going to mention later, I'm just saying this, is that uh, I'm probably going to say the same thing I said about um, GoldenEye, about how it's a reboot and a new Bond. I'll get into that later. But this is a reboot with a different sort of angle, isn't it? Yeah, we're going kind of Batman Begins style, back to his roots here. Yeah, yeah, yeah we do. We learn about how he got his double O status. Exactly. Which was this whole thing about the reboot was, was all the craze in the 2000s yeah. when this movie came out. Like I gave this example of Batman Begins or the Star Wars prequels. Everyone was interested in the stories before because that yeah. was the new franchise that people yeah. wanted to, um, I guess, emote uh, to audiences at that time and what they thought sold. Right. They wanted mm-hmm. to key in on nostalgia well they wanted to key in on nostalgia and also almost everything had been done but if you just yes. re- reinvent the wheel and make the you know have a nice sort of mag wheel instead of just wooden spokes that's nicer on the car right absolutely uh, it is we're going from the the height of brosnian kind of becoming almost like a roger moore like era with die another day and bringing bond back to his roots and that's really what casino royale is all about thank god for that <laughs> well last time we met um we discussed Diamonds Are Forever, and that was a film that didn't come out of the wash too clean, did it? No, but it was also the kind of it was the beginning of its own era in its own way too. Mm, correct, mm-hmm. it was. I mean, it, it you know it's not a terrible film it by was, all accounts, but yeah, we didn't like it, or I certainly didn't like it that much. I, I remember no. stating that I don't think I'd be putting this one back in voluntarily anytime soon. I didn't love it. No, it, well, I mean, as you know, with our scores previously, no one really loved it, but it was what it was, and for early early seventies film and sort of the style that it was going for. It was, you know, it was very similar. So you, you got to say that too, right? For for the time, that's what it was doing. Mm-hmm. I think we can agree that Guy Hamilton is a is, is a great director, yes. and uh, his action sequences in that oh, film were 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 very good. The best part uh, of it, really. But the screenplay and the acting and the choices made definitely border on parody, mm-hmm. particularly retrospectively, because Retrospect, at, at the time yes. there was a lot of. A lot of hackles raised regarding Lazenby's departure and how do we how do we fix this thing? What are we wanting to do? Let's right. just knee jerk our way through a Connery performance because you know we, that, we've learned him back. And, yeah, you know, that's what they wanted. <laughs> that's, you know, it's exactly. it's true. But this one, this Casino Royale, this is uh, you know, and it was a real treat. I hadn't watched it in in a few years, and watching it again, it's just so solid. It's such a great kind of reboot, and it's really nice because. I mean, it's nothing like the the Woody Allen one, which I'm sure we'll talk about. <laughs> but uh, it's it's a just a really solid. We don't have to talk about that movie, to be honest. <laughs> no, I think we should do like a fun uh, just like, like a, a fun feature thing, later. You know? Maybe we'll look at it later. Let, let's talk about the Jimmy Bond teleplay from 1955 to Casino Royale. Oh, yes, which I don't have any information on, by the way. So I guess we're not going to talk about that one <laughs> okay. unless you have information on that. No, that that was a, a false lead. Maybe one of our fact checkers um, can can look that up for us. Yes. What we the need are, what we need are staff. That's actually what we, we need. really do. Right. I, I I've been saying that for days. That's because you that's because you share an apartment with Josh. <laughs> Maybe true. the people across the hall who keep uh, you know uh, sending sending their smoke detector off all the time. Yeah. Perhaps they can be staff for us. Like last night, it was uh, it was crazy. But anyways. 
Well, we'll see. What, what do they do? Like, why does that happen? Because I'm fairly certain that when we were recording last time, we've got that on air. So. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I, I just, yeah. they apparently record stuff. All, they, uh, sorry, record. <laughs> we record, but no, they, some, they, they cook stuff all day, apparently. I think what it is is they don't actually have a timer. They just have a fire alarm. Like, oh, right. I guess okay. it's done. <laughs> there is people going in and out of that out of that apartment twenty four hours a day. Yeah. Right? So what I was worried about is that there was a fire and it was just literally like a, a human chain with buckets. That's what I thought it was. So I was getting a bit worried. Yeah. I think it's a very big extended family that has a couple of rooms that occupy a couple of uh, apartments in our apartment complex, and I, and they're kind of like it's a revolving door of uh, different family members. I think going back and forth and whatnot, different generations. It's kind of cute, actually. I thought it was just an underground poker game, but I think that's just because I just watched Casino Royale. I don't know. Probably. Probably. Well, well, how about we use that then as a chunky segue into where we're going? <laughs> yeah, sure. the chunky segue. I like so that. We'll just trip over chunky. the stump. Trip over the stump of that conversation and, and move on. Um, yes, slightly. Yes. <clears throat> but let's get down to that heady broth right now. Okay. Wow. Well, let's do it. You got some information on the production of this great film from 2006, and I say great not necessarily by my critical review, but great in terms of the appeal to audience and the expectation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I got some salient points here. Cubby's Corner, we call this after Albert, Albert R. Broccoli, the famous uh, head producer of uh, the James Bond films, Eon Productions, beginning in the 1960s. Of course, by this point, uh, Albert R. Broccoli has passed away and left a legacy to his stepson, uh, Michael G. Wilson, and his daughter, uh, Barbara Broccoli. Neil Purvis and Robert Wade, they're our principal screenwriters. Um, though there had been a teleplay in 1955 and a parody film in 1969 with Woody Allen, Ursula Andress, who we have yet to meet on the show, Ursula, I mean. Uh, this was to be the official film adaptation of Ian Fleming's first James Bond adventure. Purvis and Wade began the journey in March 2004, planning to bring current Bond Pierce Brosnan away from the comic bookness of Die Another Day and come back to Bond's roots. There's some contention between the producers and the screenwriters uh, when adapting the problematic, strenuous ending of the novel, which leads to Vesper's depression, her suicide and confession letter. To give the Andy some more punch, Canadian screenwriter, producer, slash director, Paul Haggis, uh, was hired. Even though Haggis came up with the collapsing, sinking piazza sequence that eventually drowns Vesper in the climax, the Broccoli's and the writers were determined to bring Bond back in reality, back to Fleming. Uh, of course, everyone knows about the 2004-2000 deal of Sony buying MGM properties. Um, Brosnan was no longer in the picture, and the aim was to have a young, rough, under-the-collar 007 trevying his way through his first case, much like Fleming's novel. With Brosnan, him having no interest anymore, stretching on as long as Roger Moore did, the hunt for the new Bond began. Um, We have, like, Goran Vinchik of ER fame. Uh, He played Luca, for those who watched ER. He auditioned for Bond. (laughs) Um, Can I just interrupt you for a second, pal? Yes, sir. Um, I just I don't want to challenge, but I want to question what you're saying about Brosnan having no more interest in the role, because I recall reading something or maybe it was even an interview. I don't remember what it was, obviously, but maybe when we get to more of the Brosnan films, we'll see it. But I I thought that he was actually quite upset to be let go. I thought he was kind of wanting to do another one. Um, I've heard like there's different 
uh, takes that I've heard on that. Like one take I heard is is that he did like four pitcher deal that he was signed up for, mm-hmm. and the thing is is that he at first he might have been interested because. I was going to go into it is that Tarantino was actually interested, uh, Quentin Tarantino, our that wacky director, mm. um, he was interested in making Casino Royale set in the 60s and he wanted it with an older Brosnan. And that was kind of the idea that was going around. Mm. Um, but Brosnan, uh, he, he realized, you know, he was 50 years old by that by 2005 and he wasn't um, interested in stretching out the, the, the character for that long. And I guess maybe the Roger Moore thing kind of set in on him. Hmm. Okay, yeah. And I mean, this is something we can explore when we get to more of his films. Yeah, absolutely. We'll, we'll, we'll go into Pierce's stuff once we get into like the later films like uh, World's Not Enough and, of course, Die Another Day. So Carl Urban was also considered. Um, Carl Urban from, you know, like Lord of the Rings and he plays Judge Dredd. And, of course, he was uh, McCoy in the new Star Trek films. I'm a New Zealand actor. Um, Australian actor at the time was Sam Worthington, was also considered. This is the guy who was in the Avatar film. Uh, he had a bit of a kind of a, of a moment, I guess you could say, in the 2000s. Uh, even in the end, Hugh Jackman was even approached. But he, can, but he had commitments um, with, with, with something else at the time. Um, so they, they, their second choice they came down to was British actor Daniel Craig, uh, rather obscure, uh, known for such films as like Elizabeth, uh, Munich, Road to Perdition, Layer Cake. Um, and he's, he was also were very well known in British television and on the stage as well. Um, of course, and many of us, I think at the time when the movie came out, recall like the fan and journalistic backlash to the casting of Daniel Craig. Mm-hmm. Um, there was like a website called craigisnotbond.com and that just like beat him over, beat, you know, beat well, it over the head. Blonde. He doesn't, you know, he's bigger. It's, it's different. Right? It, it's very different. Yeah. From the dark, tall, dark and handsome kind of formula that kind of like Brosnan and more. And even, and of course, Con- Connery exuded even Lazenby in, uh, True. in, in a yeah, sense. You're right. um, One of these things is not like the other. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Like the, they were, they thought they were getting kind of like the, the bond I- identity, you know, the, there was void of the charm and adventure that embodied the Bond formula. So Matthew Vaughn, who also directed Layer Cake and X-Men First Class, uh, King's Men is another film that he did, he did recently. He was tapped to direct the film. But who, in, who ended up introducing Bond once again was Martin Campbell. He had debuted Pierce Brosnan's smooth Elan take on the character back in 1995's GoldenEye. And he was here to usher in the new era of 007 with Daniel Craig. Craig himself was reluctant at first feeling that the Bond franchise was showing signs of strain, but once he read the script, he then decided to sign on. October 14, 2006, at a press conference on the Thames, on a big, a big battleship, actually, uh, where he was brought to the, to, to the, to, to the conference uh, via like, um, like a landing craft with actual British Marines, nice. uh, Eon announced Daniel Craig as James Bond. That's cool. And taking one look at Craig's distinct, distinct character actor features, that how this whole barrage of media scrutiny um, kind of began against him. But he was cast regardless. Um, so for the role of tragic heroine Vesper Lind, uh, Charlize Theron and Angelina Jolie were considered by casting director Debbie Williams, Debbie McWilliams, sorry, um, as was uh, at the time Cécile de France, um, known best for a, uh, for kind of a, a, a thriller kind of horror movie uh, called High Tension. Then we have Audrey Tatu of um, Amelie fame. She seemed to lock for the role, actually, uh, but then had commitments with Ron Howard in DreamWorks for The Da Vinci Code. 
Finally, French actress uh, Ava Grain uh, from The Dreamers and Kingdom of Heaven. She was hired for the pivotal role. The core cast of the novel was filled out with Judy Dench returning to play a rebooted M. Dane Mads Mickelson was cast as the heavy Le Chiffre with Jesper Christensen to play the mysterious Mr. White. British character actor Jeffrey Wright to play Felix Leiter. And Italian actor extraordinaire Giancarlo Giannini to play Rene Mathis. The principal photography for Casino Royale went from January to July of 2006. The primary locations was Berendoff Studios in Prague. Prague, sorry, I'm probably pronounced that correctly. <laughs> the majority of stun work and action set pieces were rehearsed there. It was filmed on location in the Bahamas, Italy, and the UK. Exec producer Michael G. Wilson has stated on the outset of production, they were filming in Prague and South Africa, but when South Africa became problematical, the Bahamas, in particular Paradise Island, was adapted as the official contingency plan. Over the course of the shoot, there seemed to be a fluidity in terms on location filming. They kind of went where the budget and the script and, and all that sort of went. Um, and this was all, all, site, all the online locales were kind of uh, scouted out and then filmed out by uh, director of photography Philip Mayhew. The Italian unit, of course, was in Venice, the beautiful yet underlying sinister backdrop for the final action set piece and Vesper's death. Mm. In addition, Lake Como and the seaside town of Menaggio was also utilized for the production particularly near the end. Uh, they returned for the Czech Republic to Prague, and as well as the towns of Plana and Loket to capture the Montenegro sequences. The Grand Hotel Pup stood in for the Hotel Splendide, while Karlova Vary, uh, maybe some sort of, um, some edifice in that area, was used for the infamous Casino Royale. Um, the remainder of the, of the shooting concluded at Pinewood Studios, per usual. For the title sequence, Daniel Kleinman was inspired by the original cover of Casino Royale with its playing card suits for the visuals. The visual effects supervisor, Chris Corbold, followed Eon's mandate for minimum, minimal CGI. Again, they wanted to bring make things gritty down to earth. The Madagascar chase sequence, for example, with parkour founder Sebastian Foucan as the bomb maker Malaco was all practical effects, as was the Miami airport sequence, which was filmed in England, by the way. And with spectacular sets constructed on the Grand Canal in Venice for the Sinking House set piece. Yes, that was not CGI. That whole set was constructed for that purpose. The entire set? The entire set. Because this encompassed I... the single biggest rig ever designed for a Bond set, including okay. a giant crane used to tear apart the set and a hydraulic apparatus oh. of 19 feet used for the elevator. I'm really glad that you're pointing that out because I deliberately avoided watching any of the production uh, special features, you know, on the film. Yeah. I, wa I wanted to hear it from you. And in my interview with, with, with Granio, which you'll hear later, she asked me about that. And I said, I said, I presume that there's CGI inserts through that scene because it looks way too real to have happened in Venice, yeah. you know, having been there, oh uh, yeah, I just I was really surprised. If that happened, yeah, that would be across. The, there'd be like international news, yeah, because yeah. that wouldn't just wreck one building. I mean, it would wreck. That's right. Yeah. yeah. Well, that's like, that's great. That's great to hear. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, that is. Yeah, and uh, and of course, as that's why this film it had a budget of one hundred and fifty million dollars. If that the whole budget would have gone to fixing up that building, in, in, <laughs> yeah, in in the real world, well, so yeah, much, in the real, so in the much real of that world, yeah. city, that city is listed. You know, there's not a lot you can do with it architecturally. You know, there, no. because yeah. because the lagoon is is rising there, a lot of architectural beauty is being lost, right? And oh, when we were there for our honeymoon, we were talking to the guy in whose apartment we were staying, the guy who was renting it out, and. 
you know, he was doing the breakfast service or whatever, and was just talking to him about the taxes that the city levies on um, accommodations like his that are doing holiday rentals and stuff like that. And he was almost in tears trying to explain to me that, you know, people's outside view of Venice is this rich, majestic place where everyone's making lots of money and like things are expensive there because to live there is so expensive. And most of the people who live in the city or who work in the city don't actually live in there, do you know? Yeah. Like they'll they'll come out from the Lido or they'll come out from somewhere uh, just a little further afield on the train or, or on the boats or whatever. Like they come into work, but the city itself, it, it's not the native population that it, it was in, in antiquarian times. No, definitely not. It wasn't the, the what is it, the Republica or whatever that, you know, it's interesting during, anyway. Yeah, so that, that, that's, ooh, wow, I'm really surprised that, that there would have been so much red tape for that scene. Well, that's what I may have to the entire yeah. building, right? The whole yeah. the whole facade and the interior sequences with the stairways and all that was reconstructed. <laughs> yeah, but you would also – sorry, oh. go ahead, Jeff. No, no, I was just going to say when I was watching it, I was cringing. I was like, this didn't happen there, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> because, I mean, you'd also have to do your damage control – planning oh, because yeah. what happens oh. under the surface you know when this thing goes down how does it affect the the construction or, or the foundations of other buildings nearby well could you could you could you just picture if they're like so we're gonna film a movie here by the way we're also gonna destroy like a full block mm-hmm. uh, for did... the end scene oh sure yeah no problem it's only you know a thousand years old go for it no problem <laughs> yeah <laughs> I, could, I just picture like the cleanup after that with just like tons of divers in there thing. picking everything out and cranes yeah. and yeah. Anyway, yeah, exactly. like you said, like Josh said, 150 million, right? Yeah. Yeah. And all that's in the editing by uh, Stuart Baird. Um, David Arnold returned to the recording studio to score Casino Royale after scoring the last three Bond films. American singer, songwriter and grunge icon Chris Cornell was hired to compose and sing the title song, You Know My Name. Arnold composed the music, uh, but Nicholas Dodd stood in the orchestral pit for him. And that's really uh, that's the main production of Casino Royale. So we got this new Bond, um, a lot of backlash in the media against him. Uh, we had this huge production that followed after all this, and this was all tied and put together. What was the reaction, um, Scott, to this whole um, new era of Bond? The reaction was very positive. Um, <clears throat> people yes. liked it. Audiences liked it. Critics loved it. Uh, still, I mean, if you if you look online now, most of the critics are overwhelmingly positive about it. They were at the time and they are now. Not in a Daniel Craig is the best James Bond we've ever had. There's still a lot of Connery love here going around and comparisons are coming up short for yes. the performance. But this is the Bond that people need and wanted then, which is kind of what you're intimating at the beginning. Yes, uh, yeah, exactly. This, I think this Bond, like what Craig was in 2006 and, and currently, is, is he makes sense as a Bond in today's world. So I think, I think he does work. So, I, you know, I'm sorry I'm babbling now, but that's what... No, no, you're right. Uh, he, he did work. He does work. And he, he impressed people. Uh, a lot of people in the reviews I was reading commented on his... Um, What's, what's the expression I'm looking for? They commented on his lack of dashing good looks and his unique features. And fair enough. I mean, I, I remember listening to this somewhere. I don't remember where it was. But like, if Mad Magazine did a hash up, he would be the first one easiest, you know, oh, yeah. easiest to mix. For right? sure. Yeah. Uh, absolutely. Oh, yeah, he would, yeah. But, but at the same time, yeah. like, 
now though I think he's almost like a, a sex symbol Daniel Craig because uh, from what I heard from a lot of you know from female perspectives on the movie when he comes out of the surf you know like just like Ursula Andrews did you know and Dr. No <laughs> yeah. um, that was kind of just like a whole you know um, subversion of, of that whole scene um, right. that definitely played very well with with audiences it certainly did and I mean for the record I don't think as many do that Daniel Craig is an ugly or unattractive man. I mean, and uh, I, a lot of people hold that opinion, mostly yeah. men, I, mostly men, I think, but I, I don't feel that. I think there's something really uniquely handsome about him. I, I, yeah. I agree. I agree. Yeah. I think too is that in his earlier career before he was Bond, he was that wiry guy from like the, from, you know, Lord, from road to perdition and, and whatnot, that he was kind of, he had a creepy element to him. But I think once, you know, he got into shape for the role and, and he really got into shape and, <laughs> Yeah, exactly. I think people, you know, judge a book by its cover beforehand. Yeah, well, I can tell you one thing, and you'll hear it yourself. Granio has no problem with him. (laughs) (laughs) I was going to say, through her, uh, you know, from what I've picked up from Granio, she's a rather large fan of his. Yeah, she is. And after criticizing um, people for wanting to see Jill St. John in her bikini, she goes on an awful long... I mean, I remember my interview with her is edited... Uh, yes. she goes on an awful long time about that scene coming out the water let me tell you <laughs> anyway yeah but I think Craig's a, I think Craig's a good looking guy he he, he, he suits he suits this role and he's believable in the position of a former well, SAS yeah he that's the thing is but he's like the thing is and we'll, we'll get into it especially I was going to mention about the opening part of the movie it's you know the, the noirish aspect the cold aspect of it mm-hmm. uh, is that he he with his blue eyes and his blonde hair he's got that kind of cold almost like a, a Nordic look to him you know mm-hmm. um, it, anyways but yeah he's definitely got a he's got a different air to him as from the other Bonds for sure I, think I remember yeah. reading at the time an Entertainment Weekly um, article a review, I should say. This is when Owen, Owen, this is when it was still like when Owen Gleiberman and Leisha Schwarzbaum were still doing reviews back in the day when Entertainment <laughs> Weekly was actually good. Sorry, current Entertainment Weekly, but you're not as good as it used to be. Um, Gleiberman said that Craig has almost like these android blue eyes. Kind of. Um, they just kind of like they're they're startling and they kind of take you aback for a bit. And but it, it creates kind of like a an enigma to him. It's kind of like it just, it just draws you in. And uh, yeah, um, I might I might have probably got a bit too into that, but you know who he looks like, <laughs> and I, I know that we don't have a lot, we probably don't have a lot of people who are know uh, history as much, but I think Daniel Craig actually looks a lot like some of the busts and the depictions of of, of Julius Caesar, in my opinion. Yeah, I can see that. I can see yeah, that. Yeah, I can totally see. I that. can see him playing Julius Caesar, like in like a, in a series or in a movie, for mm. example. He's got he's got some really piercing blue eyes, and I was thinking uh, if we have uh, which Caesar did well, true. Uh, I was going to say for any of our our, our UK listeners um, who li- read uh, Terry Pratchett, I was he has the same blue eyes as the character Death, in my opinion. Okay. If you read the Terry Pratchett books, the Discworld the, dis- books. the Discworld books, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and, and much like Caesar, Craig also invaded England as well by storm and took everyone by surprise. Hmm. Okay. But he did, but yeah, unlike Caesar, he didn't abandon England. He he stayed with it. <laughs> but did he did he land on the beaches of Kent? In Elizabeth, he did. Oh, look at you! You got an answer for everything. <laughs> yeah. He's smart that's, ass. That's, well, that's when he played John Ballard, right? He was like the head of the uh, of the yeah. Catholic, uh, I guess, insurgency uh, occurred during Elizabeth's reign, and when when she was uh, brought to the crown, when a lot of Catholics did not want her to be on the throne. Well, let's just summarize all of that by saying 
the public liked him. And yes. Yes. The film was released in November of 2006. It premiered in London on the 14th and, curiously enough, Kuwait. Uh, on the 17th of November in Canada and the US, its budget was £119 million, or as you say, £150 million. Uh, now, this isn't adjusted for inflation. Of course. Uh, yeah. The domestic box office pulled in 196.8, so nearly £200 million. Worldwide, £700 million, or just shy of that. Yeah. And the return on investment was 483%. So yes, dollar for dollar, a very big moneymaker, but still not among the top 10. Okay, so anyway, reviews. You want you want to hear what the what the people yeah, thought? Yeah, absolutely. Well, we're going to do something a little bit different today, okay, guys? And I hope you're okay with this uh, because most of the reviews were quite uh, complimentary to the action, to the direction, to the performances, particularly, and to the love story. Roger Ebert gave it four stars. Okay, um, I mean, I can read you part of Ebert's review here, but. I did some digging, okay, and I thought this would be fun, something different, something that we actually can't do all the time. I went back into my emails from 2006. BFG, you and I talked about this film way back then. Ah. And I have got your review of this film from oh, 13 years ago. Do you want to hear it? Yeah, let's do this. Let's Now, okay, let's let's have some fun here, but I have to apologize in advance if any of what I read steps on your plot summary's feet. Uh, it'll be interesting to compare your opinions then and your opinions now. Yeah, absolutely. Oh boy, this is going to be good. So, <clears throat> um, this email came... Well, okay, I'll, I'll just read your review first, okay? Like, obviously... There, it's probably there was so a... fanboyish. I can't, I can't... I'm just... I'm just oh, mad. yeah. Oh, yeah, it is. But that's cool. That's all right. <laughs> um, I think that's fun, right? I think that's fresh. However... I should say that this this review comes after you know general banter. I just been I just moved to Scotland at this point for a couple of months actually, oh, and after some passive aggressive remarks about not sending me a birthday present, you came around and uh, and and did this. What passive aggressiveness from me? You ask. <laughs> review of Casino Royale. What can I say? Daniel Craig, the veteran British character actor of a dozen films or so, with great bit parts in Road to Perdition, Elizabeth Munich, and a leading role in the slick Brit crime drama Layer Cake, is the best Bond, all nostalgia for Sir Roger Moore aside, since Sean Connery. But he trumps Connery in spades when it comes to embodying the figure that Ian Fleming created. Sure, Sean was slick and menacing with a roguish, broguish charm, but I'm 100% certain that between the two, Craig, not Connery, could only pull off the complexity of Bond and Love in On Her Majesty's Secret Service or here. That in mind, I cannot conceive the possibility that, she, that Connery would have made the final moments of that film work. But enough comparison, I simply state that Casino Royale, a film that manages to stay considerably loyal to the original text in a way that almost defies previous formula, is the best Bond film since 1969. First and foremost, Craig is a force of nature as Bond. All the naysaying about James Blonde and other uneducated heckling will soon be silenced once people drink him in like a martini. But like the first martini that Craig's 007 sips in this prequel, I prefer the term reinvigoration, he does not go down smooth. Lacking the good looks of previous Bonds, Brosnan, Moore, and even Connery, Craig seems a cross between the venerable Sir Sean and Steve McQueen, the essential tough guy, spurting British charm with the heart of a haunted pugilist. Craig played Bond like Fleming intended, a blunt instrument wielded by Western intelligence to get the job done, yet demarcated with a struggling soul. In Casino Royale, Bond's not yet the Bond that we know of, but steps away from either becoming that realization or embracing full-blown sociopathy. 
M, once again played by Dame Judi Dench, in a portrayal far more vicious and less of that stern materialism than before, is fed up with his cannonball exploits in getting the job done. A fantastic yet visceral pursuit of a bomber in Madagascar is indicative of this, with Craig bringing near-fatalism to the role when he tells M, after she tells him his gaining double O status was a mistake, quote, well, it'll be a mistake that won't last long. Indeed, Bond enters brazen Jack Bauer territory, evocative of the 24 characters' increasing soullessness in the hit Fox series, wherein the man has lost nearly everything possible to make him human so that he will do anything possible to save his country. This is what Bond seems to commit to, getting the job done. Going out in a blaze of glory and nothing. Again, we're far from the Bond we know of yore. It's only through luck that redemption comes through this greatest vice gambling to which his skills are put to use to foil terrorist banker. In the Cold War setting of the novel, he was financier to to Soviet wetworks, you'll remember. But Le Chiffre is played by icy, cool Danish actor Mads Mikkelsen, a merciless capitalist with death wish, who is in fact the very man that Bond could become once he loses his soul. Throughout the film, Bond is seen with various bruises and cuts on his person, but only to heal, the blood washed away in a hotel sink. But Mickelson's Le Chiffre, with his lacerated left eye that actually weeps blood, is a frightening foreshadowing to the lure of the power of the democratic executioner. Le Chiffre only thinks of his own survival. He gambles with the monies of those who wish to do harm to others. He has no allegiance or belief in anything save himself. Many would not place his character in the pantheon of Bond villains like Blofeld or Goldfinger, but in truth, he's a most Flaminian adversary Celluloid 007 has faced. Encumbered by asthma puffer, he is like the original Drax of Moonraker sucking his thumb or the displaced heart of Dr. No, inevitably a human being. As a sinister reflection of Bond himself, Le Chief adds weight to Craig's conflicted performance of the super agent. This duality of grace and brutality, the former always being a strong suit of Bond films, and the lesser, kept under the surface but rumbling from the bond of Connery that feeds upon female flesh and a cavalier lifestyle, is apparent in Casino Royale. The grace and slickness that we come to associate with the character is a guise. In the opening credits, we see how Bond gains his double O status, with a slick hit worthy of a Ludlum potboiler contrasted with a brutal takedown of the most appropriate personal arena of masculinity, the men's bathroom. It's here, on the bloody tiled lavatory, not in the double agent's posh office that we see the first round in Into the Iris that Maurice Binder made iconic in 1962's Dr. No. Uh, so the story takes us out of Fleming's world, with the origin opening prior to a not-so-great theme song by Chris Cornell. Its only one advantage is that the audio slave former Soundgarden frontman's grave vocals and Rage Against the Machine soundscape of gutting guitars stirs the testosterone-flavored martini of guys, guns, and, oh yes, girls. And it is a girl that shows us Bond's beating heart. Vesper Lynn, the best Bond girl since Diana Riggs' portrayal of his ill-fated wife, is played with heart-melting and heart-breaking tenacity by, by French actress Eva Green. As a British Treasury official assigned to Bond to provide the high stakes at Casino Royale's table, Green is an adversary for Bond all of her own. Like, like music soothes a savage beast, so too does she soothe Bond. He meets his equal via the train ride to Montenegro in a fantastic bit of verbal intercourse that reveals the persona behind what could have just been archetypal characters. Bond fans can rejoice in Vesper's repulse to his assessment of her with her perfect rendering of his entire history as Fleming himself had conceived. The chemistry is instantly electric and he intrigues and the intrigues in Montenegro progress and blood is spilled. Her Lady Macbeth like denial of her loss of innocence brings out the charmer in Bond, but he's not there to seduce, much like in the epic On Her Majesty's Secret Service, he falls in love, and not by the writer's arbitration is this clarified to us. We see it in the performances. 
The final act of the film cements this, taking us away from a conventional ending to a second climax that the uninformed may find tedious, but those breathing in every step of the way will find emotionally satisfying and powerful in the formation of the bond to come. Martin Campbell, who also directed Goldeneye, infuses a visual uh, a visual verve in the proceedings. And while the Brosnan era explosions laced within remain as set pieces to fill movie theaters, the heart of this story and the character strongly resonates, even though the staged action sequences seem sometimes arbitrary. Bond is stripped to the bone, both literally and figuratively. The famous open chair torture sequence taken right from the page is present in the film, with Bond at his most vulnerable. He's professional, he's without a doubt the man, but he's also human and the specter of death lurks in every frame. In one climactic scene, when he chases Vesper in a Venetian palazzo, the very building seems to crumble by his sheer will, a visual metaphor that takes the action spectacle to artistic heights. By the end of the film, when Craig, clad in that classic tuxedo, gun in hand, exuding coolness, utters the iconic line, he really is James Bond. That was your thought on the film way back then. Oh, we just we can skip my plot summary now. We'll just. Uh, <laughs> I I'm sorry, buddy. I just I just thought that it, no. it, you know whenever I got the chance to do something like that, why not, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. Because I thought you wrote really nicely about well. it, and yes, you were fanboying a little bit because the film was fresh to you, and we are we were then such as we are now, such big Bond fans. But I think I think you you did actually touch on a lot of what makes the film effective and of what makes you know the relationships work. Uh, if if you're interested, my reply was this. Saw Casino Royale last weekend. I took a train into Carlisle, did some shopping, checked it out in the cinema. Very good. There were some foolish moments like the whole poisoning and defibrillator scene, but I suppose it has its place. Craig is good, convincing as the jaded spy, very attractive in an unorthodox way, just like the literary figure. I enjoyed it. My rating, four out of five stars. The 40 minutes of previews and ads ruined the experience for me, though. My popcorn was gone by the time the third extra-cold Guinness ad came on. The score wasn't great. I don't know what they're doing with David Arnold. It's okay. He's able to put notes together and nice melodies, but not to much good effect. He doesn't really seem to have a clue about intertextuality with music. The theme song was garbage. It didn't fit the mood of the film at all. Bond isn't Spider-Man, for God's sake. Now, it's I guess I was... how he came around to Chris Cornell's song years later, hey? It's, it's interesting to how he came around to Chris Cornell's song. It's also interesting to hear just how much of a pretentious twat I was talking about his music because I, I now like the score among David Arnold's. You know, it's up there as one of my favorites. So I, I guess I was disappointed. Time that... will tell. I guess I was disappointed listening to the score and that I was I, I I wanted that John Barry thing and I just you're just not getting it anymore you know that's, yeah I, I totally agree yeah. and so there are some nice moments here but what yeah you know, I, I completely retract that statement about intertextuality I, I think the fact that the melodies here the themes are soft ones and they are worked into the score maybe that that's unfair uh, and it's also a little bit. Um, it's, yeah, it's a very it's unfair, workman but... score. I, I, I'd agree with. It is, yeah. It is a workman score, and there are some really, actually, there are some really good moments in this score. So I'm gonna clean the slate with that. But my response really was was terse and infantile compared to yours. <laughs> well, I think that was definitely me. Still, kind of, I, I, I guess I was about about what two years being out of university after that. So I think my film studies background was still kind of stuck to me. I was working in retail at the time and. I guess it was just me. That was almost like a love letter to myself in a way, more than it was to you. <laughs> um, just, yeah. just, just enjoying a film, you know, for all of its beauty and and whatnot. I was very into the art of it, and I do sound a little bit pretentious in my review there, but uh, I was very much into the art of the film. I think over the years, I've kind of a, I've become a different kind of film goer where 
not only is just the art of the film, but I also into the story and the characters and their world. And I can see things in context more so than I think that's why I appreciate the Chris Cornell more so than um, I, I did back then. Yeah. Just very, yeah. Yeah. So I think my summary is going to be a really interesting um, juxtaposition to what I wrote back then. Mm-hmm. I mean, that, that, you know, this is almost 15 years old, right? What, what yes. you were seeing back then. And I think you're being too hard on yourself. I don't think that that's coming across as really that pretentious. You know, <laughs> you know, film. I mean, you have obviously a passion for it. You did then going through film school. I think you're entitled and, and I think you're quite qualified to speak and write the way you have been. But that was yes. also a time in your life, remember, when you were doing, you were doing blogging and you were doing my big mouth stuff, which was great fun. And, you know, you, you had a lot more uh, presence in terms of writing and reviewing, and of course, it was more of an active part of your life. But I think emphasis uh, on writing. Yes, I, I enjoyed that, man. I enjoyed that, yeah, and it's nice. On, it's nice um, to be able to show uh, to show Jeff too, right? Because although yes. obviously you guys were pals then, he might not have. Yeah, had, we, he might we not have had access to together. your film. Yeah, yeah, we, we definitely saw. We were we definitely watched it together. Cool. Uh, and he may have even read me the review. Unfortunately, I just don't remember it. Mm-hmm. I think I might have actually due to my advanced age, but uh, I'm I'm sure that I. I was privy to it at some point. Yeah, I think I might have I might, I might have MSN'd you the link or something like that. Yeah, MSN'd it. Yeah. Well, there you go, guys. Look, I mean, I've got more, but I, I don't really want to share anymore. I'd, I'd like to I'd like to leave that. It's not every episode we're going to be able to work one of our own reviews into this. Yeah, so, yes, yeah. That's, that's cool. Yeah, let's yeah, be absolutely. let's be like, self the... let's be selfish for for once. Yeah, there you go. Exactly. That's good. So. I was so I think overall the the response was very positive and it was a, it's a bit it was it was like a a new golden era of Bond had begun. And now, Josh, you got a plot summary set. Yeah, so Prague, Czech Republic, everything is black and white. Well, not really as we are about to find out, but literally everything is black and white. Um, as Dryden, an MI6 section chief on the take, pulls up to his offices in, fa- in a fancy corruption-bought car. Upon entering his office, Dryden finds Daniel Craig as James Bond, sitting in the dark, waiting. Bond is about to dispense some of, of the OHMSS's secret omerta upon Dryden, who evidently isn't aware that his gun has no magazine when it goes to put a bullet into his unwanted guests. Uh-huh. Bond reveals the magazine, and we see in more black and white how Bond got his first kill in some bathroom in Pakistan. Ah. Uh, Welp, Bond drowns his first kill in a scuzzy sink and executes his second kill in the office. But as Dryden lies dead on the floor, we see kill number one as seemingly survived the porcelain debacle, only to be finished off with a final bullet. Hmm, where have I seen that pose before? It doesn't matter, because we have double O status now, baby. I have to say, if you told me years and years ago, when I was still in university and had my old DVDs, that the lead singer of Soundgarden would be composing and recording the next Bond song, I would have laughed in your face. And yet here we are. R.I.P. Chris Cornell, you left us way too soon. Way too soon. This depressing interlude aside, the opening credits are both cool and wacky as F, with his card suits flying around a bathed background and virtual fighter figures flourishing around Cornell's <laughs> pumping lyrics. It oh, almost like great game. a window solitaire game. on crack cocaine. Man, it is so virtual fighter too. I it love it. It is, that yeah. Virtual fighter is, is so good. You're right, Josh. <laughs> that's just that's just uh, throwing me back for that game. Oh man! Yeah, as I no, said, like, like I remember the appeal of Mortal Kombat. You know, I played it, I enjoyed it on the arcade. But really, yeah. if I'm going to play one of these games, I always liked the movement of Virtua Fighter a little more. Yeah, I did too. Oh yeah, that was kind of the big appeal sure. of it. Yeah. I like the guy that was the Blue Ninja. I forget his name though. Yeah, me too. Let's just call him Blue Ninja. Yep. Yeah, Blue Ninja. Uh, <laughs> so 
Yeah, so, you know, Corel's pumping lyrics. It almost, it, it looks like a Windows solitaire on crack cocaine. I, I, I kind of love it. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> yeah. Cornell's searing vocals and the badass guitar riffs fade away to some terrorist jungle camp in Uganda. Obano is a child soldier recruiting POS hanging out with the mysterious Mr. White, the epitome of Africa's colonial history in human form. White's money man, Hannibal Lecto Lechifra, shows up in a fleet of Range Rovers to collect the funds from Obano and his men. He sports an asthma inhaler just for that human touch and an intimidating scar by sucking his eyelid, tear duct, and eyebrow because Bond villain? Guess he has to compensate for that puffer. Looks like Lechifra is the bag man for Mr. White and his mysterious organization who are financing for these terrorists. With the money in his hands, Lechifra decides to play the stock market with it instead. I don't know what I don't know what's more wrong. Obano and his murdering gorillas, whatever greed Mr. White seems to embody to deal with these monsters, or the Shifra effing up Wall Street for the spoils of said terrorism. Ooh. Talk about the banality of evil. This transfer of funds culminates with Lashif sending some message that says ellipsis on his old school cellular and using a nifty sat phone tell his, tell his broker to get some put options in Skyfleet. Next, we come to Madagascar, where Bond and an inept field agent are moni- monitoring Malacca, a scared face bomb a scarred faced bomb maker he's I, he didn't look scared to me at all i must say especially at one all point the, i think he did uh i was just the guy who does stunts like that is not scared believe me that's why he was acting like he was scared yeah yeah i suppose <laughs> anyways our scarred face bomb yeah. maker uh, for hire and parker or and parker artist goes hand in hand i guess uh the perp attends a mongoose snake pit fight of some sort. Yeah. The field agent proves his ineptness within moments as Malaco spots him in the crowd and tears off after the same agent sets off the crowd with a clumsy fall and, fall and a loose round. Craig Bond tears off almost as the fast the bomb maker and we get a Kruby Campbellian I mean Martin Campbellian action sequence through a construction site from top to bottom as a matter of fact as well as an indicator that this is definitely not a Pierce Brosnan film. All the way to the Mbali Embassy, the fake country of which Malacco is a citizen, where Bond breaks every international law by busting inside said embassy, braining the consul, shooting at its security forces, and executing Malacco when he is cornered, finally blowing up a gas tank adjacent to him and making his escape uh, with the bomb maker's backpack. Inside, he finds a cell phone. Searching through his primitive message screens, he sees the word ellipsis. Meanwhile, the Schiffer is on the yacht. Bond ret- Meanwhile, the Schiffer is on a, on a yacht. Bond returns to London, showing a flair for the dramatic in these embryonic stages by waiting for M in her apartment. Judy Dench, M version 2.0, is already pissed with him for the Madagascar screw-up and flare-up, so creepily waiting for her in her flat is not helping his case. M tells Bond that the PM wants his head on a pike, but Bond has the magic laptop of key info confirming that Malaco has already made a bomb for one of his clients. Time to trace the sail, which leads him to the Bahamas. He checks into Paradise Island, where he meets a lame version of golf action Goldfinger and Objob, who mistake him for a valet tossing him the keys to his old yeah. convertible. Goldfinger was a madman, but this guy is just a douche. Yep. Naturally, Bond drives not Goldfinger's convertible into the front of another parked car, Oops. setting off a gazillion car alarms, Oops. Richard Scarry style. During all this commotion, Bond <laughs> enters the hotel and ducks into the vacant security office. As the alarms are turned off out in the parking lot, Bond finds another douche with an Aston Martin on the cam at the exact same time as the ellipsis message from Malaco's phone. Bond sweet talks the receptionist into revealing the current residence of the Aston Martin's owner, one Alexis Demetrius. We see the NASA beaches where said residence stands nearby. Daniel Craig bringing the Bond cinematic universe full circle by emerging all shirtless from the sea, Ursula Andrews style, or if you're a recent Bond fan, Holly Berry into Die Another Day style, sacrilege, I know, Uh. take your pick. Bond uses his, his swim 
ignoring any male or female droolers in his vicinity to check out Demetrius's digs. And most importantly, we see Demetrius's woman, Solange, who rides almost Godiva-like, almost being the operative word, her horse down the beachfront, trampling over bathers and their children. I jest, but she very well could. Aristocrats. Vaughn returns to the hotel where he finds Demetrius and Solange. Demetrius's douchiness knows no bounds. However, as Bond observes Solange storming off, probably due to some douchey comment. Bond is clearly seeing Solange as the weak link, but decides to play poker with Demetrius, taking him for all his money and, and his Aston Martin. Demetrius has a murder in his eyes, but he gets a text and hurries off. To add insult to injury, Bond calls Demetrius and seduces Solange. She is keen to put the horns on Demetrius, but nonetheless finds Bond's questions about Demetrius not what she had in mind when it came to foreplay. Bond gets the deets. He needs, however. Demetrius is off to Miami. Bond follows Demetrius out of the Bahamas to Miami International Airport, where Demetrius meets with a bomber during a bodyworks convention. Now, when I think of bodyworks being Canadian, I think of Hal Johnson and Joanne McLeod from those body break commercials. <laughs> body break commercials. <laughs> Before what can sing out the body break main verse, body break, Dem- Demetrius drops off a gym bag for his bomber. Bond goes to pursue amongst all the eviscerated and flaying art pieces, only to run into Demetrius. Demetrius seems he was better at being a douche than a man of action, however, because it only takes a, cr- a neck crane and a notion from Bond yeah. to distract him, stabbing him with his knife. Mm-hmm. Instead, Demetrius gets a knife in, in the gut. No one notices in the human throng surrounding them, however, and Demetrius slumps to a chair in the exhibit, and Bond pursues the bag man through the airport, where ducking into a clothing store's dressing room, changes it to the guise of a security officer. Using his spider sense, that's the only explanation I can think yeah, of, that's, yeah. Bond is able to locate and pursue the bomber through the terminal out yeah. into the runway. Spider sense. <laughs> After a, a sprinkler fiasco. Meanwhile, just as, we, just, we, just as we as an audience knows what the F is going on, we cut back to the UK, where M's secretary Villiers, hey Tobias Menzies, is updating M on Bond's movements, trying to find a target for the bomber. They determine that through the phone, the baddie is going to blow up the prototype super double-decker jet passenger plane from Skyfleet. There's a, a race to the hangar where the ship is going to be unveiled, and after a high-octane chase on a fuel truck across a tarmac of which the villain has attached a keychain bomb to his undercarriage, Bond is soon arrested. The bomber watches smugly from the distance, but Bond exhibits expert poker face, foreshadowing as the bomber presses on the oh. detonator and is no longer wearing a shit-eating grin as he discovers that Bond has attached the bomb to his belt. Ruh-roh! The bomber explodes off-screen, and Lashifra loses his stock options. He heads straight for his inhaler. Gordon Gecko, he is not. <laughs> we return to Paradise Island to the home of the dearly departed Alexis Dimitrios, where Bond finds M, Villiers, and her team CSI in the place. Bond soon comes across an unfortunate result to all these events. Poor Salon, strangled and mangled in her hammock. As M tisks the situation, we learn that the money man Le Chiffre has used his international influence and personal magnetism to arrange ten, a $10 billion Texas Hold'em poker tournament at the Casino Royale in Montenegro. Moral of the story, kids, don't gamble money taken from terrorists or mysterious organizations that finance them. M feels that the tournament is a last-ditch Hail Mary for the sheep to win back the money he shouldn't have gambled with. If Bond could beat him at poker, then they could offer protection in exchange for fatal info for dozens of terrorist groups and financiers across the globe. Cut to a train weaving its way through the mountains and hills and dales of Croatia. Bond is cleaned up en route to Montenegro, but to sit down to a classy dinner, and then Treasury Agent Vesper, I hope you gave your parents hell for that, Lind, sits down in front of him. I'm the money, she says. And so begins a witty and nuanced conversation between two now incredibly impelling characters. An exchange, a me-cute that no human being has ever had on Earth. It's that awesome. Oh, the tension. With a knife, you could cut it. Though Vesper pretty much summarizes that this whole operation comes down to being successful on pure chance. They make a great couple, don't they? I ship it. 
Arriving in Montenegro, Bond dispenses with their cover to desperate disdain, and the local MI6 special agent in charge, Renee Mathis, reveals the chief's main feeler in Montenegro is the police chief. What is it with Mathis and police chiefs? I wonder if that will lead to him into a, uh, a, a sad road in the end. Spoiler alert. <laughs> Back in the adjoining hotel room, Vesper forces Bond into a tuxedo, and he makes his way down to the Casino Royale. Lachif greets Bond personally, as great villains do. The players register for the tournament, Bond and Lachif included, and their friendly Swiss banker cheerfully lets the game begin. The buy-ins commence. There are some furtive glances and plays around the table. Mid-turn, Vesper shows up in a purple dress with a plunging, distracting neckline. Uh, where was I? Oh, yeah, she kisses Bond and heads back to the bar with Mathis. They play to the first re- recess, and genius villain that he is, Lachif leaves his inhaler behind for Bond to plan a tracking device because plot. Bond and Vesper return to their hotel room shortly after, only to find down the hall that Lachif and his mistress slash assassin, or whatever she is, have been reminded by Obano and his thug at Machete Point about their investment that Lachif has gambled away. Worst collection agency ever. Or the most efficient. We never find out, though, after giving Lachif a final chance to make bank, they spot Bond and Vesper eavesdropping in the hallway outside, leading to a stairwell brawl that leads Bond bloodied, Obano and his thug very, very dead, and Vesper taking a shower with her clothes on. But that doesn't make sense. Bond sits down with her tuxedo and all and sucks her fingers. Okie dokie. The next round begins and Lachif figures out Bond's tell and takes him for all he's got, including the MI6 money from the treasury to, pray, to break Tear Duct Man's bank. Before Vesper can say, I told you so, Bond bris- bristles as Lachif leaves and grabs a table knife. Subtle Bond, very subtle. Thank God for Felix Leiter, who is also trying to grab Lachif for the CIA. He and Bond have their own meet cute and Leiter agrees to back Bond for the next round. Lashif puffs away on his inhaler when he sees Bond in action. The plot thickens as Lashif's girl on the side, apparently not dismayed that he almost let Obano cut her arm off with a machete, drops a dollop of digitalis in Bond's newly minted martini. Now that that's dedication. Bond is getting an edge on Lashif at the table, but the foxglove comes through, and he leaves the table like a man soon to be swigging a bottle of Imodium. His body poisoned, uh, he barely makes it out to his Aston Martin in the parking lot. Luckily, the tracer MI6 placed to his body allows Villiers and the medical team at MI6 to assist him in real time. Kind of like Apple Tree m- m- Medical Center. But all the tripling and time spent getting the adrenaline ready to go, Bond forgot to attach the electrodes to the mini defibrillator in his gloved compartment. Luckily, Vesper is there to save the day. Imagine Lachif's surprise when Bond returns to the poker table alive. You had one job, blonde girl. One job. It's endgame for Lachif. He manages to trump everyone at the table except Bond, who cleans him out with a flush. Lachif tears off to, to plan his next desperate move. Bond and Vesper have a celebratory dinner until she gets a call from Mathis. She leaves and heading outside is abducted by Lachif and his crew. Bond races after her and his Aston Martin, roaring down a strip of highway under the night sky. His high beams cut across the road as he gains on his quarry, but violently spins off the road as he swerves to avoid a bounding gag Vesper, tied up snidely whiplash style in the middle of the road. With luck, he survives the wreck of the Aston Martin, but finds himself rescued by Lachif and his men who cut out his tracker and knock him unconscious. Bond awakes in the dankly lit bowels of a cargo ship. Lachif decides to play Bond to another game, this time with a single suit of clubs to his man parts. Oh. The succession of frames and the shiny flick of a butterfly knife and an innocent wicker chair is turned into the most horrifying oh. torture apparatus hitherto imaginable as its seat is completely cut out. Bond is stripped naked and tied to the chair, leaving his boys dangling in the breeze. 
With a cringing exasperation and fear, Jeff and I look at each other in display of male bonding and sympathy for our boy James as Lashif's carpet beater does its work. Yarg. Lashif reveals it was Mathis that betrayed him. Craig Bond is one crazy mofo, confusing even Lashif with with his uproarious laughter or dark, dark, dark sense of humor. Can you imagine Roger Moore doing this scene while being practically castrated? Fed up, Lashif pulls out his, his knife and bends down to finish the job. Knowing that he plays Hannibal Lecter did not help the scenario like at all. But hark, I hear gunshots, more like effing angels of mercy after all this followed by some screams. Bye-bye, blonde, token bad girl and weird bald henchman dude. The door of the hold swings open and Mr. White steps into the chamber and without a missing a beat, opens up Lashif's mind by giving him a dark red and smoking third eye. Ooh. Bond wakes up in a convalescence. Gee, you think? Mathis is his first visitor and remembering Lashif's utterance has the section chief tasered and hauled away. Vesper is a second visitor. This visit was better, to say the least. So Bond recovers. Nice Swiss bank guy arrives with the money for the treasury, and Vesper and Bond continue their falling in love. They decide to get a sailboat to Venice, because why not? In Venice, Bond says uh, Bond sends Em an email resignation. Vesper sees some guy with half a pair of sunglasses and a straw hat creep her out from the docks. Hmm. Back at the hotel, another blissful evening, Vesper tells Bond she has to go to the bank before they start the day. Bond sees her off, and that's when he gets a phone call from him informing him that the money has not been deposited yet. Uh-oh. Bond checks Vesper's phone, which she has left behind. I guess security locks have not yet come into fruition. The message left behind for someone named Gettler referring to a meet. Bond races after her, missing her at the bank, searching through the piazzas. He finds her meeting with this Gettler, half-sunglasses dude, and his cronies. Bond rushes out, and Gettler puts a knife to Vesper's throat, as, and his gunfire is exchanged. Gettler and Vesper disappear into the apartment building. What follows is kind of coherent. Gettler reaching the top of the stairwell and placing Vesper in an old school lift we see like in Diamonds Are Forever. He locks her in his bond, rushes after them throughout the tenement. Fist fights, gunfights ensue as the action rages on, culminating with Bond firing at the cylinders of water used to keep the tenement upright. Everything starts to collapse and the fighting gets nastier. Gettler comes after Bond with a nail gun, only to receive a round from the same nail gun directly through his own sunglass lens, or whatever it was, into his brain. By this point, we get the fall of the house of Vesper. As the building collapses into the Grand Canal and the lift with her locked inside now submerges, Bond dives down to save her or kill her. But she does the job herself, grabbing his hand in contrition and drowning herself. Bond brings her to the surface but is unable to revive her. After M gives him the lowdown, Vesper was in love with an Algerian who was kidnapped by the organization and held him to ransom by making her work for them. M brings up the resignation later, but Bond tosses some shade. The job is done. The bitch is dead. But M apparently was a Jesper, as I call James and, and, and Vesper, Jesper, informs <laughs> uh, him that she bargained for his life with the organization, knowing she would die. One last time, Bond checks Vesper's phone and in the contacts finds her mysterious Mr. White's phone number. And so it ends with Mr. White on the shores of beautiful Lake Como, briefcase of money in hand, who is suddenly hamstrung and bleeding, dragging himself across the gravel to her hero. Who are you? He asks prostrate, and her hero utters those immortal words. The name is Bond, James Bond. To not be continued with Quantum of Solace. Well, kind of. Josh, that was a great plot summary, buddy. Uh, well done, as always. We really enjoy those moments. And I don't think you have to worry too much. I think that was less fanboy, but still good enthusiasm, great detail, sharing everything you needed to. Yeah, I, um, think, it, I think it was objective more so, uh, more objective, perhaps more, more critical. 
uh, just because it's just I'm just laying bare, you know, some of the tropes of the genre. Yeah, and plus, you know, we're also working up to scoring this thing, and you don't want to give away too many of your feelings like I did by reading your earlier review. This is true. This and this, this is this is. I you definitely haven't seen my tell yet. I guess that's you could right. Say. Well, listen, uh, Jeff, we're aware that you don't have as much time today for recording and that you've, you've got a head. So we're going to give you some time here now to share your thoughts and feelings on Casino Royale, maybe bring in some context, some opinion. How are you feeling? Oh, I'm feeling pretty good. I got to say, I really did enjoy watching the opening scene uh, right off the bat. Again, like, and I guess I'm going to kind of repeat myself, is the way when I described what I was sort of going through um, GoldenEye, I said how important it was being a reboot and a new bond. Not a re- sorry, not a reboot, but a new bond, and also sort of like you know, in a new decade after the fall of the you know communism, uh, or sorry, um, the Berlin Wall and all that kind of stuff with Russia and the Cold War, that kind of stuff. So this is again important because it's a it's another bond being Craig, um, and it's kind of going back and doing the original book. Uh, by Fleming, correct? Mm-hmm. So th- this is very important. And again, having Craig looking totally different than the rest of the Bonds, being blonde, uh, you know, uh, larger build, um, and technically being SAS, not being, you know, um, an, a naval commander, that kind of thing. So it's a little little things um, that I think worked really well. Um, yeah, I'd agree with you on that. And I, I just want to pick up on something you're saying, which maybe touches on part of what we were saying about his casting as well. I think that it works nicely, the fact that he is SAS instead of uh, naval commander yeah. or something, because we were getting, aren't we? I guess the tradition of the character gives us the idea that MI6 just recruits from social clubs or like polo clubs or yeah. something. Like It's it's not yes. that way, you know, and, and Craig's bond isn't of that ilk and it, it works no, nicely. No, definitely not. Um, but again, so that's that's the thing is because I think that it was probably easier for them to say he was SAS because just look at look how he goes through Madagascar. He's just a wrecking ball, mm-hmm. pun intended, because of what he does with you know um, the crane and all that stuff. But uh, you know, I mean, would you ever picture any of the other bonds running through a wall? No. <laughs> uh, it, I mean, um, for the record, it, it is it is plaster. You know. Yes. Oh, well, it's okay. drywall. Like it, it's it's not okay. running through steel enforced, you know, or studded beam woods or something. Well, okay, yeah, I mean, that's true. He, the did, he did pick the spot, but it was the optics. But yes, of course it was. I'm splitting hairs. I'm with you 100. No, no, percent There's fine. a deliberate contrast there between oh, no, between agree. the no, panther no. like jumping through the, the little crack and Bond just busting his way through. Yeah. Also, film- also the first the, the sort of the first example of how he's kind of a different Bond is looking at how they – and I really liked how they kind of just went to a really quick shot of him killing that guy in that bathroom. That was brutal. Mm. I mean that was <laughs> – that was pretty brutal. Yeah, you, feel you, like could see him, you could see him being uncomfortable though. He acted that scene well. He did. He, he did, yeah. Like, he didn't kill him with like a big smile on his face. He was no, shaking. No, no, no. Yeah. You know? Exactly, and that's what I liked about that scene. Mm-hmm. It's almost like as if I'm, I'm drowning this guy in, in, a, uh, in a sink right now. Mm. Yeah, and I mean, as much as Bond has finesse, you can see that he he has the tools of the trade, but he's not just like you know. I'm just going to slap you with. Uh, I'm going to. I'm not going to put like a, a barbell in a glove and slap you. He's like, I'm going to like put your head through you know a sink or what have you. <laughs> mm. um, so I thought like I was really happy with the film, especially as a reboot and just as a film in general. But as a Bond film, it was really good. And I know that we had mentioned before, sort of with. Um, the other – oh my gosh, I'm having a brain fart here. The other one we did with um, Craig and we were saying that it was it was sort of a victim of the, the Jason Bourne style 
This one, though, I felt that the editing was way better for the action sequences. It, it was um, better put together. Um, and you can really – it just is one of those films when you watch it as a Bond film. Even if it's not a Bond film, it's like it's kind of like the way uh, we, we Josh and I have described the, the Batman uh, – like The Dark Knight Rises. It's great as a Batman movie, but you don't even have to like Batman to watch the movie and enjoy it. Yes, I see this what you mean. Yeah, this is yeah, a great action movie on its own. Yeah. Yes, so I'm thinking exactly. – so what, what, basically what I'm trying to say is that even if you're not a Bond fan, this movie holds up well by itself. Mm-hmm. And I think Craig does a fantastic job. And I, I just like how he has confidence uh, and he's cold uh, in certain aspects of it. But he has a confidence and a power that you don't see in a lot of the other Bonds, in my opinion anyways. Um, and so I did, there's a couple of fun things. So you know when they – in the casino scene, which is obviously super important – um, I was, I just kind of looked it up. And so it's actually at a place, uh, in, in Montenegro, obviously, uh, it, it's pronounced, uh, Bichichi. I think, um, fact checkers can see if I'm t- saying that right. Um, and it, and it's at the, it's called the queen of Montenegro casino. And that city only has about 900 people. Wow. So it's very small. Um, and I just looked it up. The most expensive suite in that hotel is, uh, 1400 euros a night. Wow. That's, yep, that is and uh, it is expensive, uh, and it was actually called the Milena Room because Milena was the only queen of Montenegro. How about that? Oh, I see. So I'm guessing that this place, this casino, and the, the hotel is is kind of built in a location where people will go to it, as opposed to being built within a city itself. You know, that this yeah, is the reason people exactly. go there. It's on the it's on the coast. It's on the Adriatic. It's beautiful. Apparently, uh, it was also rated the most beautiful beach in Europe in 1956. It won an award. <laughs> um, another fun thing, not related to necessarily to Montenegro, but uh, there's actually a website. Um, it's the MI6 HQ website, and it actually gives you um, training on how to do poker like Bond. Oh, really? Yeah, so if you go to mi6-hq, this is not a plug or anything. I've just found it, and it tells you how to play poker like Bond, and it gives you all the, you know, the hands and the rankings and uh, the types of bets, and uh, it's fun, and it, it gives you. And then there's also little things you can look up on Bond and different things like that. I thought that was just kind of fun. Um, and some other things I was looking at is that like uh, the, is that like the the governmental equivalent of the police car like taking you for a ride when you're a little kid like here police is okay there we go. <laughs> basically yes I, that's what I'm getting out of this this gets kind of like softening up the public like look we're fun we're fun too <laughs> well that's yeah it's all about optics right mm. um, and so yeah I was trying to find stuff about you know financing terror and all that kind of stuff and see if there's anything close to what was happening in Casino Royale uh, and I actually found one and it was actually about a uh, a money laundering ring that was it was basically you know trying to finance terror uh, in the good old British Columbia and this article is fairly recent wow. it's from 2017 it was about an RCMP investigation looking into underground banking and alleged laundering of drugs and cash through casinos in BC um, and so basically I think what, what they were trying to do was that there was a massive underground banking network um, and basically they were just trying to what was it saying here? That they spent more than three hundred million offshore and laundered about two hundred and twenty million in cash in BC in just one year. Um, that was, uh, and I think it was actually the Chinese uh, mafia. They had established a, a direct link between illegal cash, 
facility, which involved illicit funds being involved in drop-offs to casino patrons at the River Rock Casino, uh, which is in BC. Um, and so basically, this was funding the, the the gangs in Canada, but also in, in China as well. Um, so it's interesting. So there's there's you know that actually kind of happens. Not, so there's a Canadian not, James Bond out there who did that operation breaking well, the bank. <laughs> yeah, breaking the bank. Yeah, exactly. Um, but it, it's interesting. So I guess it kind of works sometimes. It was international wire transfers connecting to drug dealing. With uh, They covered up with fake trade invoices from Chinese companies, and they also showed connections to companies in Iran, which everyone knows is the, the largest uh, terror financer in the world. There you go. It's allegedly. I'd, I mean, I don't have contacts in there, but from what I've read, <laughs> different sources. You just like to clarify On the Chinese that. side of things, uh, Casino Royale was actually very well uh, welcomed in, in, in China. They, they even uh, basically had to create a whole – voiceover um, explaining the rules of, of poker to the audiences. Well, I, I think, you know, just getting back to something that Jeff had said, it's quite interesting that they decided, and I think quite good, as you said, Josh, that the filmmakers decided to go back to the source material and stay so true to the source material because the book was written, uh, published in 1953, but it was written under the, or within the context of a great number of, losses for the British intelligence and for for um, the idea of the empire itself, you know, with Suez on the way and all this kind of stuff just brimming to bring down the idea of Britain's strength. And this is when Bond comes onto the scene. I mean, it's, it's no accident that, that no. Fleming created for for uh, the, the, the British reader or the English reader, perhaps more specifically, the need or with Bond, then this is heroic type of guy, right? Who um, who kind of satisfied their needs and belief in themselves and belief in empire, and I guess also it satiated the writer's own need for something like this. Jeff, you got any you got any info on on the climate that has managed to not so much be resurrected but just revisited here in the film? Well, with this, and like what you're saying is the 50s, it was a fairly tumultuous time in, in England, and in, in, especially in the intelligence uh, you know, uh, family <laughs> that uh, England and, and the West had. Um, is there was people like uh, – so around the time – around that time, there was some people that had just recently defected uh, to Russia that were um, basically double agents, um, the famous uh, Cambridge spies. So that was um, – Kim, oh, well, Kim Philby was a part of it, and then you also have uh, Guy Burgess and Don McLean, and uh, I believe a gentleman by the name of Anthony. Oh, I'm not going to call him a gentleman, but <laughs> Anthony Blunt and a, a John uh, Karen Cross. So the the thing with the intelligence community at that time with England is they had these these guys had been had infiltrated the British intelligence since the 40s, and. Um, Right up until like the the late '60s, they actually had caught one other person, and he was going to be uh, probably the second. I think it was going to be the the second highest intelligence officer in secret intelligence, and that was a big blow for the intelligence community. Um, going forward, um, in the earlier '50s, um, two two of those uh, Cambridge Five uh, Cambridge spies actually had. Um, uh, they could see the writing on the wall, so they actually fled to to Moscow in in 1951. Mm. Uh, and so, it, it, anyways, I think what you're uh, I know that you had asked me what the climate. So, in the 50s, sort of post war, but also right into the Cold War, uh, and very sort of black and white. 
and red and white, if you will, with uh, you know the the communists and um, and Russia as it is. So it was a very tumultuous time, and I think with with Casino Royale, um, it's important because it's uh, it's showing Bond coming in, trying to shine a light, and trying to be sort of like a, a savior. I guess is what it seems to me here. Yeah, and I I didn't phrase my question clearly at all. That was all a bit garbled. But I, I guess what I was trying to say. So is was my that, answer. <laughs> no, no, your answer was certainly clear enough. Just as the book, the original story, was conceived and written at a time of real uncertainty for a guy like Fleming, for, certainly for the empire that he grew up and loved and, and wanted as a as you know as a uh, denizen of Jamaica to to hold on to that sort of stuff it was written at that time of defection and uncertainty and post-war cloud and the film represents a different sort of uncertainty with all the terrorist funding and yes. you know, post yeah, 9/11 well, world. That's, that's the thing. So the that, tone, yeah, the tones are very exactly. similar, aren't they? Exactly. Well, that's the thing. So it, uh, if you're going to do it smartly and, and sort of try and um, compare it to uh, at the time in 2006, uh, you know, the world and sort of what's going on. Um, in the world in that sense is that they would kind of try it is the post 9-11 world and it would all be about sort of terrorism mm-hmm. <clears throat> so this is how they would decide to do that jump to make it um, more relevant of the time yeah basically. yeah all right well i mean do you want to give because i know you you got a you got a dash do you want to give your scores now or do you want to seal them in an envelope and give them to josh <laughs> and, and we can we can talk about them all together later on when you're not here well, if I put it in an envelope, as long as you promise to put it in the burn bag after, because it's oh, of secret, course, you know. of course. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, no, I, I would love to give my score, and my score, um, you know, if it was a poker hand, it would be quite, quite a good poker hand. Okay. Because <laughs> it, right. it would be uh, three, it three oh. of a kind. Three um, of a kind. Yeah. So my the atmosphere, I think, in the film, uh, it, I'm going to give it a nine because it's just, it you you, you really get pulled into it. And there's lots of different ways that it pulls you in, whether it's the action, the dialogue. I really loved the scene, the first um, the first meeting between Vesper and Bond. That was a really, really great sort of first scene. It was, you know, there was um, humor and then there was, you know, some innuendo in there. And also they're working together. So how's that? It, it, it just felt really good, right? Like, yeah, it's, the atmosphere it's really, was good. Yeah. It was a really strong first meeting. Also, I... Again, I'm going to say it again. The opening scene in black, the black and white, the noir, is sort of like the origins of Bond getting his first kill and then doing his obviously his second kill to get the double O. Uh, really strong. Um, the atmosphere, I felt, was very, very strong in this film. I'm going to give it a nine. Okay. Um, I think it, it's it's super solid. And again, watching it, you know, after I watched it in the theaters 13 years ago, uh, it still holds up really well. I forgot how good it was. I mean, I really enjoyed it, but then watching it again and obviously, you know, uh, making notes as we will for the podcast, it, it's solid. You know, um, the acting I thought was very good. I'm, it's eight and a half, nine. I'm gonna get. I'm gonna go. I'm gonna round up here. I thought it was very good acting. Um, I thought Craig was excellent as Bond and in his own incarnation of Bond, of course, um, as the blonde. You know, running through uh, walls. So I, I give the acting nine. The story I thought was also very, very well done. And again, like we were saying before, is how the, how do they try and make it relevant from an older you know, plot and in dealing with the current happenings of the world in two thousand and six. I thought the story was quite was was very good. Uh, I'm, again, I'm going to give it a nine. Uh, I was quite captivated, and um, obviously. Uh, as any good Bond does, a good Bond movie does, is that it, it uh, leaves you with a cliffhanger. Hmm. Well, 
that's a high score indeed. Definitely your highest. And, no, it's absolutely my highest. Um, yeah. Uh, so obviously, it would be great to have you hang around a bit more to do a little bit more excavation of you know the justified position. But that's that's awesome. Twenty seven is a, is a super high score. Just before you leave, let me ask you this. Absolutely. Because I got my own feelings now, having watched a couple of these uh, Craig's. Do you feel like Craig's performance, which we watched a, a bit a month ago with Quantum, do you feel right. that that is consistent with what you see here in his origin, in his first performance? I liked him more in Casino Royale than I did in Quantum of Solace. Did you see a change at all? Yes, I did. Well, see, the thing with Quantum of Solace is that he is all revenge. Yeah, he's, that's right. Yeah. You know, he's on a one-track mind. Uh, but in this one, he was not. But, no, I definitely did see differences in how he was portraying him. Mm-hmm. But I, overall... Um, I do like him more in Casino Royale than I did in Quantum of Souls, personally. Yeah, and one of the things we talked about when we watched Quantum, isn't it? We all stated that this film doesn't have, that film doesn't have a lot of linger. It doesn't hang around, whereas this film really does hang around because of its set pieces. And that's probably why we see more dimension in the character. Yes. Yeah, exactly. The only thing, the only qualm I have with this film is that the car died too quick. (laughs) (laughs) It certainly did. Yeah. And like it died. Yeah. And he finally, like, if you recall, we were talking about Goldfinger about how um, the, the design of the uh, of the Aston Martin at the time, yeah. he had that drawer oh, yeah, that, yeah, that, that, right. that comes out yeah. with, like, the gun and whatnot, right? And that was never in the film, but it was actually built for the design. And this time they finally showed it. that They had that glove department, you know, under, that had the, um, the pistol and the defibrillator and all that. Hmm. Oh, that's true. Well, have you got anything you want to sign off with then, Jeff? Uh, well... I I really enjoyed uh, this podcast and I was it was really nice when we when we sat down and watched it again I was just I was loving it I just thought this is such a great film and I was really excited to do the the podcast about it uh, to all of our listeners and to talk about it with you guys as it's always fun so um, for sure I just want yeah just I guess in closing for myself uh, this was a really fun movie to review again because Josh and I would always review movies just after we you know we would go to Denny's or something after we'd watch a movie mm-hmm. and we would always review things so. It's like reviewing a movie we did 13 years ago, and I think it, it I held up pretty well. I can still taste those matzo sticks. Yeah, man, matzo sticks. <laughs> well, that's, that's a good one then for you to have to cut short on because you guys have already done some of this We've already before. done it before, yes. Uh, well, we look forward to having you back here uh, for uh, another full episode when, when we select our next one, and hopefully you'll yes. be back later on when we roll the roulette. I still think it's going to be a Roger Moore film. Uh, we'll see. We'll have to wait yeah, and see. Yeah, true. I'm thinking I'm, it's, the smart money's on Roger Moore. If the ball lands in, in, in between like Octopussy and La to Kill, does that mean we're going to watch <laughs> Never Say Never Again? Is oh. that, is, is... <laughs> well, there is no in between for that one, buddy. True. Oh, yeah. Because we don't have that registered on our wheel, unfortunately. Oh, unfortunately. Right. Well, uh, we'll, we'll, we'll take you with some music, Jeff. Thanks very much. You're very welcome. See Thank you, you guys. Okay, BFG, then it's just me and you now to finish off the show on Casino Royale. Jeff gave us his scoring before he left. 27 out of 30. Boy, he liked it. Yeah. Curious (laughs) to see where we all fall (laughs) in the end.
Okay, I think we're probably going to be close um, because, you know, we are complimentary of this picture. Certainly so far we have been. And, you know, we, we all seem to like the idea of the reboot, don't we? Indeed. So, look, we got a talk story, acting, and atmosphere to get our money penny scoring out the way. Let's, uh, let's thrash up the story. Uh, give me your feelings. All right, let's go to the story. Um, I think the story was very strong uh, compared to most Bond films. It didn't follow the same kind of structure, or at least it presented a more modernized version of that structure. Uh, I will point out, and I do feel this ba- all the way back then, I found the first half of the movie, or, or the first quarter perhaps, before they reach the Casino Royale part of the, of the story, uh, I did find that um, they did a good job of, it almost feels like it's, another film almost at times. Um, and it was kind of like how that diamonds are forever feeling where you're trying to follow see where the plot leads. You're just following the characters all around the globe. And I found it kind of gets its gravity or it comes down to earth in the Casino Royale sequence uh, that carries off for the rest of the film. Do you agree? I do agree with that. Yes. I found actually that I could follow the film pretty well throughout, uh, but I had difficulty with the Vesper, the boyfriend, the telephone call from M at the end, the dying, the I'm sorry, James. I found that there was a lot. I mean, in a film that has long set pieces, you know, really careful dialogue, I found that there was a lot crammed into that ending that made for a complicated, what what's happened here? Like, is it is it a betrayal or is it a betrayal sacrifice or is it a is it a double bluff betrayal sacrifice? Like, I could not upon first viewing and now it took me time to get it looking at it again i couldn't quite figure out uh, clearly at least what vesper's whole shtick was yeah we we, we kind of get the exposition in the end that mm. you know she her lover was being kidnapped and she was doing this against her will um and that she also fell in love with bond and the actress i think conveyed the emotions of of, the, of that but i think the the, the the scenes near the end it seemed it was kind of rushed or maybe edited way edited down way too too much in the end well that's how i felt and um, I agree that the performance was good, and I agree that she's directed to show the kind of ambiguity of her emotions. You know, there's often moments where the camera is focused on Craig, and she's in the periphery, kind of looking off or sort of uh, kind of glazed eyes. You know that she's dealing with something, but w- w- so so you know there's something going on that is it's, coming through the performance. But it, I th- it's the, kind of the story is not clear to me there. Yeah, it's kind of interesting because we were discussing um, when when we did. Um, through literary gun barrel and we were talking about the novel casino royale and how he found like the end the ending of the of thing is so stretched out and so long and tedious almost to the point and here they're trying to correct that mm. but they fall into another trap and that is too rushed mm. so it's like is there a happy medium that could have been found here in the you know you know what i mean i don't think it really detracted my enjoyment of the movie anyway but i think we kind of missed an emotional beat that we should have had Okay, I, I've got to disagree. I've got to stand up for the common man here. You're more intelligent than I am. You're more perceptive than I am, I suppose, when it comes to this sort of stuff. Uh, maybe you have a Rolodex going through your mind of all these little indexed points of character. I, I didn't. I needed a more straightforward explanation of what was going on with her because I didn't understand until I really went down to surgically cut it up. And even now, I I think I've got it, but she was planning to 
deliver the money. She was always going to double cross the treasury, but she was yes. planning to just kind of pay off the kidnappers and then go with Bond, right? Is that is that uh, is that how you get it? Kind of, but I think in the end, because is that the whole sequence, like the exposition in the end by M brings in, brings brings you back to the sequence in the cargo hold where Bond is being tortured and um, Vesper is supposedly in the other room, right? When Mr. White arrives, mm -hmm. and that was and that was supposedly when she negotiates Bond's life, and she knew that she was going to her death. Uh, after she drops the money off. Why? Like, why did she do that? I don't understand why she did that. Because she could save both her, her fiancé and, and Bond at the same time. But why or do her... they, why do they, like, is it just, they, they want her dead just because she's a contact and, and she could, she that's could speak. It. That's it. Yeah, that's how those organizations operate, right? Yeah. I mean, that's, that's the whole thing. Mm-hmm. Right, and they would well. probably, and in the course, I mean, she's doing this against blind hope because I guarantee you they would probably. And it, now we know from Quantum of Solace that that guy was full of shit, right? Mm -hmm. um, but they would have probably killed him anyways if he was the real deal. Yeah, the, the boyfriend or the or the fiance. I mean. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Bond had a disciplined time not killing him, didn't he? I mean, it all it all happened off off screen, didn't it? We didn't actually see it, but we know that he kept him alive when M rocked up. Yes, and the and that scene at the end of Quantum, yeah. He, he was all professional. <clears throat> right. Okay. Well, I mean, these questions and these answers that you're offering are ways through the story that I didn't see clearly. So, I see. That's, so that's so, good. It did it, so that has to detract from from my enjoyment of the story because although I really course. liked it and I particularly liked the closeness to the book, I found the Cold War complexity of the novel easier to understand than I did this one. When I was referring to like the the novel, I was more of sense of that. I remember we were very critical about how almost a sense of boredom of how the whole sequence after the the you know the the. The Casino Royale, the the torture, the death of the chief, Bond's convalescence, and then him them going on to like to some uh, French beachside for months or whatever, right? And mm -hmm. and how all this developed and how it was over a long period of time, it was much more the time period was much more quicker because after Bond convalesces, they pretty much take a sailboat to Venice, right? Yes. Which is not, which is not far from where they were in terms of of geography. So the same the amount of time that occurred for Bond and Vesper's courtship, you could say, um, is much longer in the novel than it was in the film. Yeah. So I felt that the that the filmmakers wanted to cut that scene down, but the casualty of cutting of of cutting that of those sequence of of adapting that in a much in a much more fast paced way was that you lose some of Vesper's uh, motivations and some of and, and an emotional beat in terms of um, why she did what she did. And, and, uh, and then the emotional connection between, between the two of them as, as, uh, as characters. Hmm. Yeah. Okay. I, I, I can't disagree with that. Yeah. Well, it that's is. good. Yeah, no, I, I can't. <laughs> it's fine. And I'm glad that you're we'll here to, 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 we'll stick a pin in that and just leave it there then. <laughs> yeah. I mean, as for the rest of the story, I did like it because I followed it no problem. I just didn't, uh, I don't know, I, I, I've said it at the time I, and I still feel the way and I know it, it goes against the grain of what a lot of Bond fans love about this film, but 
their relationship is not is not quite as convincing to me as a lot of other people feel. Like Ava Green's a great actress. Uh, Daniel Craig's a great actor. Or, or correction, they're both great actors. These these, you know, but I, I just didn't get. I I don't know. I just didn't see it. Like I got the attraction. Uh, yes. But I didn't get the. I, don't know, I just didn't get it. I just, I just didn't settle with me. I, I didn't. I don't. I don't feel that this love is plays an effective counterpoint to so much of the smashing and action that we get. Like I don't. The softness of the character doesn't work the same way on me as it does, obviously, everyone else or many okay. others. Well, this is how I feel about it. I feel that the relationship was going into a direction that was very believable and building to the crescendo that they wanted to um, after the, but, but at the point of, you know, just after the casino royale sequence and the torture sequence, it was, it was believably building to that point. But then I found that once we get to Venice, it just seemed everything was very rushed. Mm-hmm. And we, we don't really feel like, we don't really get into Vesper's mind about the portrayal. We're only told about it. We don't get her perspective on it. And I think that was kind of a little bit of a, uh, that was a bit of a, a, a failure um, in the writing. And I think that that failure was because of they rushed, they tried to speed up that sequence in the novel and they didn't, and they didn't kind of go down to the DNA and pick it apart. They kind of just like cut chunks of it out. You know what I mean? Yeah. They're already in a two hour film at this point by the time they get to Venice. Yeah. Yeah. And I remember watching the original film too, and like I was like wondering at the time, um, watching the original film. What I mean to say is that when I first saw the film, mm-hmm. uh, I, I, they introduced this guy Gettler, who has a very distinct look about him, and mm-hmm. I want to know more about his character. And, and and he just kind of appears in the end as just like a thug. There's really there's really not much to him. Yeah, I but, liked him though. I thought he was great actually. He was in his small role, absolutely. But one thing I didn't remember, and I saw and noticed in this version, was Mr. White walking away with the briefcase and kind of watching, observing everything. Yeah, how and the hell did he retrieve of... that? How did he, how did he retrieve that briefcase? So he must have got it from Gettler. He he must have been in it amongst the thugs somehow, like in the Palazzo. And Gettler ha- handed the briefcase to him, and, and Mr. White walked off. That's what that's what I'm feeling. No, the the, the briefcase is floating in the water. Oh yeah. Okay. Yeah. Sorry. The briefcase is going under with the the whole building, the whole structure. So he must have slimily like. <laughs> How did he get it? Like super, he, he, Superman did out. Yeah, he. I think he was there, but he probably was probably watching in the, in the shadows. Maybe he planned to kill everybody once he had the briefcase himself. Uh, maybe. I mean, he did good to get it out of that tumult. Let me tell you. Yeah, absolutely. Anyway, that guy Gettler. Yeah, he's played by a guy named uh, Richard Samuel. He's he's quite good in that film. I really liked him. You know, yeah, was, like he was so it was very menacing when he had a knife to Vesper's throat and stuff. Like, wow, this guy is pretty nasty. Mm-hmm. Like, I, I kind of wanted more of him. I wish he was kind of in the earlier part of the movie a bit. You know, maybe uh, hanging around there with Mister White or something like that. I think we are touching on something important here, Josh. You know, the way that this ending is a little bit rushed because it's it's fantastic visually and to hear, like you said earlier, when Jeff was with us, that the production of this was all built you know, kind of on location. That's really impressive to me because it is a great scene. Um, I I just feel like at this point in the story, you're already, or I'm already invested in the characters. I do believe in their relationship. I don't believe so much in their depth of love for one another. That's what I don't get from them, okay? I do get get the great dialogue in the train. Uh, Trains are great locations to set scenes for Bond films, aren't they? I do get 
I do get the the attraction, and I do even get Bond understanding the the frailty of her and the duplicity in her character, even if he can't quite articulate what that duplicity is. I do say yeah, he's trying her. to figure her out. Yeah, that's right. He's trying to figure her out. To her. And I think he does want to help this this woman, and I, I I do sense the attraction certainly, but I don't I don't make the same leap into love zone and like that sort of torturous. The, the, the sort of tragic ending that this offers like the sacrifice she could have been represented more heroically or more with more dignity than she was if we had seen a little bit of what happens between the 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 ball busting chair attacking you know and then the venice yes. stuff like, and the novel did go into detail about that, in my when, opinion. I well, it, Vesper's letter, I Vesper's letter was very uh, explicit. Yeah, we 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 didn't get the uh, letter. We got an underwater act of contrition, essentially, and and then and then her take and then her taking in air, right? And that was or water, I should that's right. say. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that that's, that was the, that was their adaptation of that whole part in the novel. But do you not think that that's a lot to ask an audience to just get? Because, I mean, then you've got M on the mobile phone talking to Bond. Yes. Talking to Bond through, you know, part of it you see her in, in the office and part of it you hear over the phone very quickly. And, you know, then, then we get Bond following the text on Vesper's phone so we know that she left a crumb for him to follow. And I appreciated that. I understood all of that. But it's just her involvement in the bigger picture and her boyfriend and the sacrifice. That isn't spelled out clearly enough. And maybe I'm, maybe I'm dense you know, yeah. when it comes to this, but I've just followed a film that has been really methodical in its planning and in its big set pieces, and I've liked it, and I've been into it, and this is rushed to the point where, no, you're right, it doesn't really detract majorly from my enjoyment, but it does take me down a little bit in terms of... Um, yeah, exactly. Yeah, I, 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 agree, I agree with you there. I think it's one of the flaws of the film, in my personal feeling. <clears throat> Again, like I said, it doesn't detract from my enjoyment from the film. That set piece is fantastic. And I can kind of hand wave a lot of stuff away, mm -hmm. but I still think that even though as much as I love this film, um, and I have and I, I do have a pretty good scoring for it, I think very fair scoring. Um, I feel that that was definitely one of the weaker parts of the movie was this last act, and I think it needed to be really, really good. And I, I think they just missed a bar here. Mm. They didn't miss the bar with atmosphere. They missed the bar with no. maybe how it was all written out. I do and or, acting. Yeah, yes. and I, I do have a couple of questions before I reveal score on on story for you. Just a couple of questions for you. Like, yes. See if we go back to the, the beginning a little bit. Um, that uh, the Madagascar stuff is 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 great. Like, I really like that stuff. I mean, who yes. wouldn't? I think it holds up as one of the best action sequences on film like that, oh, I can, that I can recall. And it does, because of Martin Campbell's touch, it does herald back to the greatest bits of those Zorro films, which I was never really great fan of. But man, the action in those films are great. Are, they were. Great. They were. That scene where he jumps from the crane or, or follows, you know, Malaco from the other side and mm -hmm. he almost like misses it. I, I, that... The clang of the metal and him, his elbow banging against it and holding onto it. I was just cringing through that. As much as I was cringing, of course, through the later, through, through that sequence later on, too. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's great. That, that whole stuff is, is awesome. It's a spectacle. And I could watch that over and over again and be quite happy with, you know, with doing that repetition. But I do have to ask a question about the story here. Like, 
And I get part of this is character building because they want to show this Bond as a little more reckless and less kind of refined than those maybe in the past or Brosnan's Bond. But there would be diplomatic ways of getting this guy out of Madagascar and his phone, right? And interrogating him. Certainly there would be. But did you like Bond's decision to just shoot and kill? Like in, um, I, in characterizing him as a loose cannon, did you did you like that, or did you think that this was probably unbelievable even for a tougher, more reckless agent? That's a good question. Um, I think it worked in the movie, but as the Bonds we know before, I, I don't think he would have done something like that. Um, that was very brash and tempestuous, you know, how he did that. And I guess they're trying to convey that this is proto-Bond, you know, like he's not the Bond that we know, the consummate professional yet. Mm. You know, he doesn't know how to make a martini yet. You know, like, I guess that's what, what they're kind of going at. Again, James Bond begins, right? Yeah. Um, uh, but I, I can agree with you that I don't know if that was the decision that I would make in that sequence if that was the case. Him busting into the embassy and beating the shooting and, sh and like, and, you know, shooting in defense and trying, trying to get the guy out. Yeah, absolutely. Mm -hmm. um, but... I think they could, they could have done some way to, to, to get that backpack to him. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Yeah, there, there must be some other ways to do it. Anyway, I mean, it, that but, didn't uh, really take away from, from my fun of no, what's going but on but it was here. a quick solution to, to, to the whole problem of that sequence, right? Yeah, and I think this is a bond that has the quick solutions. But this is, again, why I asked Jeff before um, <clears throat> if he felt as though Craig's performance here links up with his later performances because I find Craig slower and more thoughtful and maybe that's just him as an agent aging and evolving too you know I, if you wanted to play devil's advocate to it or sorry if you wanted to to give him the the um what the benefit of the doubt you know yeah I kind of found that like after that sequence though like when him going to the Bahamas and causing you know the car alarms to go off and you know, and, and, and enjoying taking, you know, Demetrius to town on all, all his money and the Aston Martin. That was very classic Bond. Like, that was just very Sean Connery kind of thing to do, right, is piss off the villains. Mm -hmm. And I really enjoyed that part. Um, I found like, things slow down incredibly, but in a good way when he gets to Montenegro and we see him in the hotel suites and we see him putting, you know, el drinking alcohol and, clean and, 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 you know, and cleaning up his wounds and his bloodied body and stuff like that. And uh, and capturing that grit, you know, that they were going for, I found that very good and down to earth, and that was classic Daniel Craig moment for me. Mm -hmm. And I think the other films, Quantum of Solace, Skyfall, and so on, if I remember correctly, um, when we go over them again, I guess I'll I'll you know I'll um, look at that in it from another angle. I, I think that's kind of the 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 modus operandi that the Craig Bond films kind of have. Yeah. 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 I think I think you're right. I, I'm just I'm trying to remember too, and I felt like he was slower in Quantum, but I accept your point as well that that he was he was more single dimension there about revenge. So we'll go with he definitely that. was. But yeah. I found that like, and I liked how he was, there was like a looking glass kind of moment feeling when he was with Camille and, and those sequences and how they kind of they they kind of underlined his situation with her situation in the film, and she's kind of like almost like a, a like a literary. De device for his character development but unfortunately the editing and how and how quantum of solace was filmed i i think takes away f from that so it's kind of like it's kind of just sits there to the side as as not fully formed and continuing naturally from casino royale okay well let me ask you another question on story before we leave it um i, I just made a note of a couple things here do you think it's a ballsy move on the part of the filmmakers to include 
or move away from you know the the casino or sorry do you think it's a ballsy move to include the uh, airplane bombing the terrorist subplot is that in a post 9-11 world i mean just four years after really thinking production wise is that a way that they're trying to make bond even more of a worldwide hero by not just having him do something but take down a terrorist that wants to blow up an airplane is that a little bit too uh, a little bit too break of the fourth wall a little bit, I'd say, but the motivations of why the airplane is being destroyed are explored, and they're a great, you know, a subversion of that trope that was already existing in the post nine eleven Hollywood blockbuster, where you get all like these terrorists, kind of, you know, as villains that that, that are starting to appear, and then you like twenty four, for example, right? Mm-hmm. But then you have Bond um, stopping this bomb from going off, not because. It's because a terrorist act or anything about religion or anything like that. It's simply this guy just wants to earn his money. He, he you know, he wants to make m- money off the uh, the finances given to him by terrorists. Yeah. Okay. I, yeah, I, I think okay. I got into that in uh, in my summary. You know, like the analysis yeah. of of, yeah. of evil in that sense. Mm-hmm. Okay. Fair enough. I mean, I, I could see that. And you're right. There's a lot of terrorist villain stuff happening at this time, so it might just be a trend jump. Exactly. And one thing the Bond films do well is that's why they yeah. survive so long is that they follow the trends quite well. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, another thing that came out in terms of story that I was conscious of as I was viewing it is this this fight that happens in the stairwell, right? In the casino between different shifts of the poker game. This is, to me, it's quite obviously a way that the, the, the filmmakers can ensure there's a bit of action here, that they don't lose the audience because... Maybe people watching Bond are used to a bit more explosion, a bit more uh, anger. Maybe maybe not everybody's hanging on the drama of the poker scene. And so there's no real need, plot-wise, for these guys to come in here and threaten the chief right away. I, I don't know. I think because the, the, the because we're, we're in the head of Bond during the during the poker game and whatnot, we're not really seeing what Lashif is doing. We're seeing Bond trying to um, counter his moves, right? But we're here, we're reminded through the sequence of Lashif's uh, desperation and his situation as well. Mm-hmm. Like that whole sequence where uh, they're going to cut the girl's arm off and he doesn't really do anything, right? He's like, go ahead, do it. You know, like, I want to survive this, right? Um, and then okay. you and then, and then you just oppose that to Vesper in the shower with Bond consoling her after, you know, her being traumatized by that whole yes, situation. I, I, it's I a really good contrast. I don't doubt that it helps to build the love story a little bit. It helps to give them a little bit of you know, I think time it also together. Boosts, but... I think it also boosts Lashie's character. Yeah. He's not just this walkaway type of villain, you know, who gives a big exposition, uh, you know, and, and puts Bond in a trap to let him to let him die. He's a take action kind of guy, and he's desperate. And I think that scene conveyed that, in my opinion. Okay. And I think in terms of writing the screenplay, I don't see how they could further, um, I think, enforce to the audience. Uh, this guy's situation minus in the in the beginning where they where they set it up. Yeah, M tells us that this guy now he has no money after the Skyfleet thing, and we can probably you know b- break his bank and then and then use him as a as a, as an ally in terms of our war against international t- t- terrorism. But I guess they wanted to put us into the perspective and the reason why he's doing this, right? 
okay, fair enough, I'll accept your point, but I would argue back by saying if that's what they're intending to do, and if, as you say, Lashif's a man of action, when they exit the room, Lashif very clearly would have heard those gunshots. He would have heard the struggle. Why the hell didn't he just go shoot the people then? Like, it's not like, like the whole, as soon as the, as soon as these warlord, this warlord and his guy leave the room, it's like Lashif just disappears from all conception. He would have heard every damn thing that's going on in that hallway. He yeah, but Lashif to, to me, okay, I, I apologize. I don't want to use the word man of action because I think Lashif's a bit of a coward, to be honest with you. And I think that him not going out is, is addictive. If he hears a gunshot, he just stays in his room and maybe Bon will be killed off as well. He's not going to go and, and counter that whatsoever. And he, he, he doesn't torture Bond until he's locked in the room with him and Bond is tied to a chair. Right? Yeah. Yes. I, I, okay. But I got to disagree here, man. The, the, the man who just came in to threaten your life, the man who you owe, owe millions and millions and millions to has just left your room and you hear all of this explosive gunfire. You're not going to be the least bit interested in maybe gaining relief by knowing that this guy's dead. To be fair, it wasn't uh, really loud gunfire. The guy had a silencer, if I was mistaken. And then it led to the fight down down the stairwell. Well, okay. I'll, I'll I'll give that to you because I can't recall. I'm just thinking there's no way a struggle like that, you know, it, no. I, I just don't see a struggle like that wouldn't have been heard. That's, uh, we'll, we'll agree to, to disagree on that. I think in terms of the screenplay, they had themselves in a corner there, and I think they wrote themselves out in a good way, and they managed okay. to reinforce um, Le Sheet's situation. But I do agree in terms of if you wanted to, like, nitpick not nitpick, sorry, but to look at this as uh, something that could ruin your immersion in the sequence would be trying to put that scene together and and why he wouldn't have heard that in the in the uh, from the hotel room yeah, and I'm why not, he didn't take action at that point. I'm not trying to nitpick too much. I, I I'm not also saying yeah. or I'm not I, saying I know, that I, I, don't, I don't. for the word nitpick. I, I, I didn't mean to use that word. That's I, all right. I, you can you can use that word. I I, I do think the scene is, it is good. A it's fun. It's fun. It's a fun scene to watch. I'm just yes. thinking that it's one of the looser ones. One, you know, it's one of the screws that maybe is a little bit uh, un. Or one of the hinges that's a little bit loose here in the plot is this one scene that kind of stands out. But it does give us action. Maybe it helps build a little bit more of that love story that comes later. But we, you know, I, yeah, whatever. I just had to pose the question because it's one that I wrote down when I was. To be devil's it. advocate in a further sense as well. Yes, please. One could say that that scene was written in there too to force that love interest between Bond and Vesper. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Like they had something built going by the time they reached the Casino Royale from the train to you know to her like going to the concierge desk and and Bond just declaring who he is right away and her like throwing the pen down in frustration. There's some great nuances there for sure. Mm -hmm. But um, then we have Bond going right to the casino table and we lose that banter between the two characters. And you know we have we have her lecturing him and whatnot. But they use this they, they, they use this particular moment, this action sequence to reinforce that relationship. And maybe they could have gone in another di direction. You know what I mean? Yeah. yeah. So I'll be, I'll be devil's advocate on that for sure. Absolutely. I think it worked in the film as, a, as it is. But I do see how you could have gone in different directions uh, that would probably have made it more believable. Okay. So I'll, I'll concur with you on that. All right. Well. Let's move it away then from that a little bit. And let me bring up a couple final points here on story. And I do think story is probably going to be the longest thing that, that I have to ask you about because I, I really want to think seriously about the score because I think this is probably, well, I won't say it yet, okay, but I just want to think, I want to make sure I'm really careful and I, I want to make sure I got it before I, I offer up a final. So a couple yes. more things here. 
what's with the guy's wife on the yacht and the dedicated shots to how disappointed she is when she loses at the beginning? Like, because she's the same woman who's playing at the casino, right? The same Asian woman that Lashif has in the yacht is also at the table at the end. Yeah, and she was actually uh, one of the Bond girls in You Only Live Twice. Oh, was she? Yeah, she was the girl at the beginning. Um, if, if, if you recall, and you'll, of course you'll recall even more when we get to that film, but she was in the so-called uh, death sequence of James Bond in the beginning of the film. Oh, was she? Okay, cool. Yeah, the, I, I the, uh, that, but... the, the Chinese girl. Hmm, okay. Well, there you are. So she's doubled up, but what is her whole, like, what's, what's her thing? I, I would say that's the visual connection between how Lashifa is able to organize that whole tournament in the first place. So is she a plant? Is she just there to make sure that if the money does go to her by luck, then he'll get it back easy? Yeah, I think that seems like a, one of those scenes that was probably was probably was probably given more impetus in, but it was probably cut down for the for the final cut. Because we have no explanation of why she's playing two poker games with Lashif, do we? No, but this to me means that he, that she might be the one who runs the whole or part of running the whole tournament. But we don't really know that. Yeah, so, I get yeah, that, that because because Lashif says something about throwing them overboard. Yeah, like that's that, there's some there's something fishy going on there to me. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I'm not quite sure on that sequence. All I know in that sequence is that we 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 get another you know message on the phone for Lashif in this mm-hmm. whole ellipsis. Mm-hmm. This literally elliptic um, mm-hmm. plot device, you know, of following these texts across the whole movie. <laughs> yeah, so it, it could be a blind spot in the plot. It definitely could be. Hmm. Okay. Uh, I do want to credit, though, some excellent editing uh, during the the bit where Bond cuckolds Dimitri. I really like that stuff. All of that stuff is really good. What's the actress's name? Katarina Marino. Katarina Marino. Yes. Yeah, she's quite striking in the picture, isn't she? I know that she doesn't do a lot. She is, you know, eye candy, to use the misogynist term. Yeah. And she's very much a plot device. And Bond very much just drops her because the caviar and champagne he orders, you know, the edit there is really good. The cut is good where he says no just for one. And then he hangs up the phone and then we're in a cab on their way to Miami airport, you know. Yeah. Like, I, I don't think they stuff. even consummated the relationship, to be honest. Yeah, I'm not sure either. Yeah, I, I, I guess they didn't, unless they had done it before they landed on the floor. You know. Yeah, I, I suppose, but I just think he was just there to get information from her, and that just kind of showed, you know, like his callous side in, in a way, especially how she ends up. Mm-hmm. And I will, as one of the criticisms of the story, I will say that I, I wish her character was a little more nuanced as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, she's good. She could have played a bigger role. Yeah, uh, but I'm not. Up, you know, the movie's two and a half hours. I'm. You know, I, I'm not too bothered that she didn't. I'm just saying, I like that stuff. I was interested there in everything that was going on, and particularly then when, when M finds her later, you know? Yeah, and starts, yeah. And starts, you know, she basically lectures Bond and informs him at the same time and punishes him at the same time while this body is twisted in the hammock on the beach. Yeah, I know. It was very callous in how it, mm. in how it was portrayed, but it was very well filmed. And I feel that this was just an example of showing, you know, just the not just male bodies in that in the wake of Bond's destruction, but female bodies as well, mm-hmm. and not and not even through his own intentions either. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, I like that stuff. Um, but there, I did have a couple of as ifs while I was watching that whole Miami <laughs> Chase stuff, and I'm wondering how you felt with it. Okay, like one of my as ifs. Okay, for the Miami Chase, 
like, would they really still roll on with the presentation of this airplane coming out of the hangar when all this stuff's going on? Like, they know there's been a breach of security by this point. There's cop cars on the runway. Would they still bring this plane out? That's true. And, like, wouldn't M or Villiers, like, send a message saying, don't send that yeah, plane exactly. out? exactly. Yeah. Yeah, I, I agree. I actually really don't enjoy the Miami sequence, to be honest with you. No. It's my least favorite part of the whole movie. It's quite forgettable, actually. C- compared to, like, the uh, the parkour stuff in Madagascar? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I definitely. And the thing that really kind of cheeses it over the top for me is we have this incoming plane that's coming down. As if that thing wouldn't have been warned by, you know, traffic control that, you know, don't land. Go back up into a circling pattern or something, right? Especially in the 9-11 um, Exactly. It's all a little bit It's all a little bit dumb, actually. Yeah, I definitely agree. I think this feels like they wanted to have another action sequence mm-hmm. before getting down to the poker table for 40 yeah. minutes. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And that comes back to my earlier point, like this thing in the stairwell. Is this just the filmmakers saying, okay, look, maybe we can make the writing fit to a connection with Lashif and his desperation to the love story budding between Vesper and Bond. But let's just get another action scene in here because you know what, guys? We're about to do a 40-minute episode where there's not a lot of action. And I also think the same thing about the whole poisoning at the table. That's a little bit, you know, and, and having to go out and... I actually like that sequence uh, yeah. mostly because I just liked the... I love the whole Casino Royale sequence in terms... Uh, I just like kind of like the, the counter moves that are, that are going on there in that whole in that whole situation. And I like the idea that Lashif, you know, he... Okay, so obviously he now has the CIA backing him. So now we got to poison him, right? And I, I just found that whole sequence was really good and kind of funny in its own way. And it kind of amusing, a sort of dark comical way about how he doesn't even have like the electrodes on you know what i mean you know, you know what i mean mm. um after all of that and i, I don't know I, I and i like the idea of like the whole mi6 team kind of managing the whole situation and trying to get him to uh put put in the the, the, the adrenaline and get the, the defibrillator working i i, I like the, i think i like kind of showed them working as a whole team you know what i mean and just not, not just bond on his own i'm stretching this out to um beyond what i had prepared in my mind to talk about it for but do you catch my drift? <laughs> I do. I catch a drift, yeah. Yeah. The Body World exhibit. Now, Body World's really cool, and it was of the time, and I'm sure that the exhibits are still going strong, but how do you feel that that plays 15 years later? Yeah, uh, not quite 15, but 13 I recall when I first watched the movie that I just didn't like that sequence. I'm like, this doesn't feel like Ian Fleming's Casino Royale to me at all. What is this Body Works thing? <laughs> Why aren't we in the yeah. casino yet? And I still have that feeling... T- to this day, and and, and it's, 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 I think it's one of the more visually interesting parts of the bodywork sequence, getting down to like the blood and guts and the grittiness they're trying to show, uh, having like you know that knife that that like n- that knife uh, uh, tug of war between Bond and D- Demetrius out in the open. I thought that played very well, and that was probably the best part of that whole action sequence. Mm. I thought there was some subtle humor at play there with that set. Like I I don't know, like a little wink to the audience maybe that this is a like, perfect place like, to hide like, a dead body, right? And, oh, definitely. And you've and also the poker got... Game. And the poker game, too. Like, did you notice, yeah, you notice yeah. the poker That's game? That's right. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I did. I did, actually, yeah. I think that it was, was a good cool. artistic move on, mm. on on Campbell or the writers, in, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. And it is, like you say, visually, it's quite an interesting, it's quite an arresting thing to see, right? All these stripped bodies or these bodies that have been donated to the, the scientific exploration of anatomy and whatnot. And here they are just kind of up in the suspended liquid for all to see in position. And uh, this bond is killing people, basically, and others are after him. And you've got this going on while other people are looking at dead bodies. It's, it's quite a meta thing at work here. Yeah, there is sort of a breaking of the fourth wall, for sure. I think it would be more interesting if, like, the head of Skyfleet was at that exhibit 
and there would be you know an assassination attempt or a bomb going off there. I think that'd be much more interesting and and in a in a visual way and not feel like a kind of a lumbering action sequence that something like a Michael Bay sequence that they you know that they, that doesn't really need. You know what I mean? Mm. You see Michael Bay like you feel that in this. Well, I mean, I'm just giving an example of just like a non an unnecessary action sequence. I'm referring to his awful Transformers movies and whatnot. <laughs> okay, right. Okay, I haven't seen any of those. Okay, that's good. You probably saw Michael Bay when he was still decent, like Armageddon and like The Rock and stuff like that. Armageddon would be my best example of the beginning and the end of of him being any kind of a great filmmaker. <laughs> I didn't see Armageddon. I've I've seen parts of it, but that damn Aerosmith song plagued the airwaves when I was a teenager. And oh, I just, God. And, you know, yes. I, I kind of liked Aerosmith growing up, but that song just was grating on me. And I just felt like anything that, 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 that's just represented by this, I'm not watching it. Yes. And I felt Liv Tyler, Liv Tyler was... was always tough for me to take seriously. Oh, absolutely. I'm, uh, I, I agree with her. Yeah. She's not a great actress in my opinion. I and mean, she seems like a nice person and whatnot, but <laughs> how do you know? <laughs> How do, we, how do we know what she's like, man? You're just trying my, to be nice. My sister met her mom, Bebby Buell, so I guess she, she said that Bebby Buell oh. was a nice person. All right. Okay. Fair enough. Okay. Yeah. Was that at a Comic-Con or something? Yeah. In, in New York Comic-Con when she was working on a comic um, base in the States. Oh, cool. Cool. Yeah. The, uh, the, the writer of the comic knows her personally because she, she's in Bebby Buell, who is the mother of Liv Tyler. She was kind of like, I guess, a groupie artist type kind of person back in the seventies. Um, and she's the mother of Liv, of Liv Tyler. Um, she was a comic book or she was launching some sort of comic book s- series on her own. And that's how he made the connection with her and how Jacqueline met her. Okay. Right. Jacqueline being my sister, of course, to of audiences course. unfamiliar. Yes, of, course. of course. Well, look, uh, I, I just wanted to throw some of those ideas out, those questions that I had, those yes. notes I had made. And, I, I'm with very good. I'm with you and Jeff with respect to the story. This is a strong story. The little bits here that you know every film has got little bits you can pick up. Every film's got little bits that you can criticize and dissect. And I mean, I don't think you're wrong actually for using the word nitpicking because I guess that's kind of what I'm doing for the sake of our conversation is asking you how big a problem are these little things, and they are little things. The Vesper, things, the Vesper stuff, I, I, however, the, the relationship stuff, the double crossing stuff, the sacrifice stuff, that is a bigger problem for me because I would like the explanation a little bit more acclimatized, and I didn't get it. And for that reason, I've, I've marked the story down. I, I gave the story a 7.5 out of 10. Okay. I gave the story 8. Okay. So we're not really far away, are we? No, no. I, I I like the story as a whole, but I think the acting and the atmosphere is is, is incredibly incredibly strong in this film, and uh, just the whole feel of the movie. I I just loved it as a Bond film and as a movie in itself. And I overlook you know those little things, but I do not deny that there is some slight weakening in the foundations of this great house that is Casino Royale. It's not quite cl- like a collapsing palazzo, but there is <laughs> no. some slight weakening in the foundations, some cracks yes, in the foundations. But they're not significant enough to take away from anyone's enjoyment of this film. And as you said, as we all agree, this is a great action film that anyone can enjoy without being super Bond fans. In fact, I'd be surprised if this film hadn't, in its own little way, drawn people to the cinema from for the action and maybe made Bond fans out of them, you know? Yeah. That's definitely true, and I'm glad that it did. 
I know friends of mine who weren't really Bond fans and, and, you know, and now like I remember going and I've been to since Casino Royale, like, uh, to the, you know, to, to the cinemas with them for the, for the, for, for the Bond films that were to follow. So it definitely got some newbies in, into the, um, Bond universe for sure. All right, bud. Well, why don't we go on now and, and talk about acting? I've got less to say here, but a higher score to share. Uh, do you want me to go first or, or do you want to go first? I don't mind. I'll, um, I'll break into it right now. I gave acting okay. 9.5. Wow. Okay. Wow. Yeah. I found I give it a less than a pr- I don't give it the full marks mm-hmm. just on the basis that there were some characters to me like that just weren't fleshed out. Like I found uh, Solange because of the script. I think she didn't really come across as I mean, she was stunning, of course, and uh, and I, she had a good presence, but I never felt that she was a big part of the movie. Um Demetrius played the, the actor who played Demetrius. Uh, he seemed, you know, he was properly Ducci, but I just didn't really get into his character, I, I suppose. And again, I think that might be just a, a, a hindrance of the script and just how they filmed that sequence or directed it, um, that they never came across to me as strong characters, uh, as the characters in the rest of the film do. Um, yeah, I found Craig was fantastic in this film. Like, this is a guy who showed every faucet uh, he felt like a human being to me like not just like a, a, a blunt instrument you know as they call him but this was a guy who was not fully confident in his abilities but he was brash and ego egotistical but he was also caring and sympathetic and and very charismatic as well at the same time um and i think he excels over connery in the sense that i don't get a i, I don't get a cruelty in his actions to how he treats other people cruelty definitely in terms of his targets and whatnot right but in terms of getting the job done uh he's definitely callous but i found his interactions with people that he knows that are good people he doesn't he he came i don't know i just came he came across more likable and vulnerable than say connery for example Mm -hmm. so i think craig is a strong part of this movie and his evolution to going from brash that blunt instrument to the James Bond saying those famous lines at the end of the film, I think was very believable. And Craig did that um, uh, excellently. Um, we did discuss, you know, in the story about how the story kind of weakens the motivations of Vesper a little bit, but you can't deny how good Ava Green was in that movie. She was very likable, personable. She wasn't just there as eye candy, even though there's kind of a subversion of that, of her just being an, an agent. Um, she was kind of a tragic figure in that way. I wish that we had a bit more explanation in terms of the motivations behind what she was doing or more of a clearer picture so that we feel that betrayal. But I think the actress conveyed it be- beautifully. She went beyond the script, in my opinion. Um, and Mads Mikkelsen was a very charismatic villain. He was very different from the other Bond films that we had. And, and to me, I think he's always been a uh, Good actor. Very stoic, very deadpan at times, but I've always enjoyed Matt Mickelson, and this is just another example. Um, Judy Dench was excellent. I liked kind of how they remodeled her from a, a more classier version in the Brazen films to someone who's a bit more hard-edged as a woman trying to survive in the espionage game of, you know, this boys' club of espionage. And she's there, and, and, but she, and she, she, so she has to be, like, raggedy and, and dogged in her determination of what she wants t- to get done. And I think and she was this great kind of, like, not a mother hen to bond, but almost like a like – a, a distant kind of uh, wolf mother to to him in a way. I guess if I'm going to get my animal metaphors. Um, <laughs> yeah, wolf mother, okay. Expressed, yeah. And of course, uh, and Felix Leiter, uh, given the fact of, of 
of some of the lighters that we've seen so far in the Bond series, I would say Jeffrey Wright is one of the strongest ones. Jeffrey Wright is one of the strongest Felix lighters. He could be my favorite. My my only thing that kind of keeps me from, or that I'm a bit hesitant about about him with, is the fact that I can't picture him and Bond in Harlem having a good time. And oh yeah, from the I can't. Die. No, I mean I'm I'm joking. I'm talking about the books, but in terms of the books, he doesn't strike me as. Um, as much of a uh, as as much of a kindred spirit, like th- there are still some real distances between these two figures, and I like I like to think of the friendship. However, if I recall correctly, they it's do. It's kind get, of funny how like I think they Craig get closer. Bond, yes, Aquamasalis definitely shows that, but I, I like the connection between them. I I agree with you on that. Mm. I, I think it's funny though. I don't know if you agree with me that. Um, uh, you know how we have like lighter supposed to be the brash American and Bond, the sophisticated British guy. We kind of have the opposite here. We have sophisticated, stoic, you know, lighter versus the brash Englishman. It's kind of interesting. Yeah, it is. But I got a problem. Not, and again, this is script. I think this is story. This is not necessarily. Uh, this okay. is not the acting. But we're discussing Felix Lighter, so bring yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. One of one of my things about uh, uh, you know this whole Lashif thing. Like as soon as soon as lighter gives Bond the money and Bond wins. He then, Bond turns to him and says, he's all yours. But then he clearly doesn't pick him up. Like what the hell's Leiter doing while Bond and Vesper are having this big ornate dinner in this beautiful, this this lovely uh, early morning surroundings? Like why doesn't Leiter just go get Lashif then? Like if that happened, then the rest of the film doesn't play out the way it does. Like this, this, yeah. is, kind of, this is kind of weak, you know, to me. I, but that's I, not I, his I, fault, I kinda, obviously. No, I kind of agree. I, I think that in the storyline, what they could have done is shown the CIA men attempt to grab Lashif, but he kills them or something like that, mm-hmm, and then he mm-hmm, and then mm-hmm. he and then he makes his move to grab Vesper, right? Yeah, sure, okay. Like, yeah. like they could have indicated there was more CIA guys there than just Lighter. Like, where was Lighter's team? Yeah, you know, there must Bond have been a team, team there. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Bond had Mathis, and he had Vesper from the Treasury. Mm-hmm. So, like, where was his team? You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Anyway, I mean, again, this this is just this is small stuff, really. It doesn't affect too much. Um, I thought the acting was great uh, in this film, really engaging. Um, I agree with you on Bond. I think I think Craig's Bond has a variety of emotions for all the criticism that's labeled against him as being kind of just cold. Like, yeah, he is cold, but he's cold and killing. Um, I think he he opens up, you know, just just fine. <laughs> enough yeah. to uh, enough to satisfy me at least I, I think he's, he does that wounded animal thing very well he does yeah um i didn't like the performance of the two of them in the shower i know it's like a seminal scene you know it's like a, it's it's meme really isn't it but yeah i, I don't I, really i don't get the whole sucking of the fingers i don't get turning that into a sexual thing and how that sexual thing is is somehow supposed to be uh comforting as well like i don't know does that work does that work for 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 like, yeah, like anxiety are they attacks connecting and sex stuff? and violence. I don't know. Are they are they trying to like connect sex and violence together in, in that particular sense, right? Um, yes. It's just all very weird. It's, it's a weird it's a weird mix of Im, uh, of image and symbol. Like I, I don't know what the connotations are supposed to be and how I'm supposed to react. Maybe I'm looking too deeply into it. Maybe I mean it is it is just five or six seconds when he's there sucking on her fingers. But I, I thought that that would, that played sort of jolting to me. Like if he's there in a compassionate way. 
I think if he had like kissed her fingers or something, I, I think they would have conveyed the idea that he was trying to, you know, like bring her bring her back down from whatever, you know, PTSD that she was going through at mm-hmm. the time. Well, yeah. Was, was that a directed cue or was that just improv, you know? That's what I'm wondering. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Maybe they thought that and, and maybe they, they did that to kind of connect the central relationship between the, the two of them. Yeah. That he's very fond of her and he wants to protect her. But at the same time, yeah. he's lusting after her. So you're connecting sex and violence together again. Mm-hmm. I don't know. It's very interpretive. And it's almost it's I guess you could say it's arty, I suppose. And so if you can make those interpretations on both ends, then they, they must have done something right with it, I suppose. Well, I agree with you as well. Mickelson's great. Uh, Yeah, he's stoic and he's kind of mysterious. His desperation does come through more in screenplay and scene than really through his performances. But he does have some nuanced moments in this film that make him a really interesting guy to watch. Uh, Mathis is good in his moments as well. Uh, Demetrius, I agree with you. He's probably one of the weaker acting lengths. But again, what does the script ask him to do? Asks him to be a dick and then die. So yeah. Like that, exactly. that's, that's all he has to do, you know. Uh, Mr. White is introduced, okay. I would love to have gotten more out of uh, the Gettler character that we mentioned earlier. Yes. And I got an interesting story, actually, on um, on the guy who is a tournament director. If uh, if you've got any interest in hearing that, his name, uh, he was... Oh, the Swiss guy. Uh, yeah, no, 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 not, not the banker. Not the banker, the actual, uh, the guy who, who directs the tournament. The guy named Carlos Leal. Oh, yes. Okay. Yeah. Anyway, I was listening to an interview with him. This is going back six months, maybe a year now. No, it wouldn't be that long. Five or six months. Anyway, he was explaining kind of his his agent's call. Like they they were, um, they put out the notice that they were looking they were auditioning for villains for the new upcoming James Bond film, Casino Royale, and he went and did it. His agent got him in because he's he's quite a big figure in Switzerland, this guy, Carlos Leal. And he went and, and did the, the audition and, you know, yes, it's very good. Thank you very much. And his agent called back and his agent was like, blah, 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 blah. You, you've got this, you've got a part in the Bond film, blah, blah, blah. Your audition went really well. They really want you for this. Uh, anyway, he lived three or four days of his life thinking that he was Le Chief <laughs> before his agent clarified the fact that no you're actually they want you for like the croupier or the tournament director or in the <laughs> casino and he is quite funny you know his reaction was oh this is awesome i've landed a villain part in the new bond film right <laughs> like here i go skyrocket and he talks about oh, I, I remember him talking about like how excited he was with his girlfriend at the time and all this type of stuff what and a then, come down but yeah but he still got to play that cool part right anyway yeah for sure it was interesting i'll I'll have to search that out and see i I think it was um i think the show was a show called i was here too Uh, i gotta i gotta check on it it's it's a podcast um hosted by um this guy named matt gorley who is quite a quite a good character um he's an actor and a writer and i think you know he does bond stuff himself he's a bond fan himself He's got that show where he interviews people who were parts of films and talks to them about stuff. And, and that was where I actually heard that. So that, That's pretty cool. Yeah, it is pretty um, One cool. thing I, I noticed, did you watch the, the, the Becoming Bond documentary? I did, yeah. That whole, oh, no, that, not that. I liked one. how they actually trained to play poker off, off, when they weren't filming. Like You could see Mickelson and Craig and all those guys sitting around oh, cool. off the set playing poker right mm. well after the show i'll go back and watch that stuff and maybe it'll it'll straighten out for me some of the story issues i had with vesper and the betrayal too or the the sacrifice but i went nine for acting overall you went 9.5 okay. huh yeah 9.5 yeah. yeah i mean these this is a considering what we've seen so far these are really high acting points uh i, I think- thought the ensemble cast was good and yeah it's it's really fun to watch these guys all together and these girls as well in terms of atmosphere, 
I liked the atmosphere of this film. It was really working for me, uh, firing on lots of good cylinders. The lingering helped me get into the scenes. Some of the sets were understated, but on I'm sure on repeat watching, they'll, they'll be really impressive. Like the atmosphere of the action, uh, you know, aside from the Miami stuff, which I actually found kind of slow and a little bit... The, the subplot, the, yeah, the subplot was a little bit, I won't say unnecessary, because we needed to know how this takedown of the stock would help Lashif kind of settle some financial problems and all that kind of stuff. So I, I get why it's there, but it is a little bit dull. But the atmosphere is okay there. But the atmosphere everywhere else I thought was, was great. The Venice stuff was nice. Obviously, how couldn't it be? It's a beautiful part of the world, and it's really nicely filmed. And I thought one of the things that we credit the earlier Bond films with is going on location nicely, which is something Quantum didn't really do that much. And even though they could have, which even is though they could really have, frustrating yeah. about it. Yeah, uh, but here I think we we're in location long enough to linger and to celebrate different features and and things, and even the interior settings. You know, like like the airplane, or sorry, like the 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 train. You know, like the cars, like we're getting good conversations here that help milk out some of the atmosphere too. So yeah. I like it. I, and I think I think part of the atmosphere here, you know, much like with descriptive writing, has a lot to do with how willing a writer is, or how willing a film is to stay in one place for a little while. Not too long so that it's, it's heavy handed, but long enough that we can sink. And this film does that really well, does it really nicely. I went 8.5 yeah. for atmosphere because there were still some things that, I, you know, I felt were too quick, like the ending and some things that kind of took me out, but not very much. This is a nice <laughs> film to watch. It's a, a nice film to feel. I also took it down a little bit for the score because although this is a good score, in contrary to what I said in that 2006, you know, jivey email to you, this is a good score. There is real nice orchestral work to it. The pieces are still there's still not as much connection as there could be to the motifs of the the title song which Arnold did have a hand in writing you know and I think that's important as well this is one of the only songs that David Arnold actually got a chance to 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 get into you know yeah because he's always he's always been like uh interfered by broccoli or or someone else in terms of of that song because we know you know that that they wanted to use that Amy Winehouse mm-hmm. song for the film. Now, for Quantum of Solace, because we know that Amy Winehouse had her problems, and that's why she wasn't able to do it. But uh, the last minute going to, like, you know, Jack White and Alicia Keys for, I guess, to get the younger audiences out there, I think kind of brought it down a little bit for me. Yeah, and, and he, couldn't, he couldn't work it into the score either. And and Madonna comes around, and, uh, you know, she, she shut the door on any collaboration, and so he's left writing a score without any big motif. And here, at least, he had something to work with. There are some yes. nice cues here in, in the score. Anyway, I went 8.5, I went 8.5 for the atmosphere overall. It really yeah, did work for me. That's really good, and that's very generous in, in that sense. And... I was a little more generous. I gave it a nine. Okay. Um, but my takedowns were that, yeah, the score was not as strong as I wanted it to be. I think there were some score sequences scored beautifully, like the um, the Madagascar sequence is done really well. I like the Bond and Vesper Mew theme. I think that works well. Um, but again, though, a lot of these action set pieces are very generic David Arnold that we've come to um, expect after Tomorrow Never Dies, mm-hmm. which to me is still the strongest of the David Arnold scores. Yeah, I, it's funny you I, mentioned I that because I think I think some quality yeah. from that. Yeah, yeah. I, I have to. I mean, it's been ages since I watched that film, but I remember liking that score the best. And it'll be interesting to see if it still holds up to what I liked back then when I saw the film when we when we eventually get to it. So yeah, I went overall uh, score twenty five out of thirty. 
for this film, which is my highest thus far. You are 27.5 and Jeff is 27. Yeah, that seems a, a very good indication of how good this movie is. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, for sure. And it is a good film. In fact, I'm going to go out and say that um, I'm not sure that this is my favorite or will be my favorite James Bond movie. But I think I think it could be the best. And I don't just mean that statistically by, by my ranking. What I mean is I actually think this could be the best James Bond film that there is in this official line. I don't know it's my favorite because that, that involves a lot of aesthetic and it involves a lot of, you know, other stuff. But yeah, th- this, lot, this is a film that... This is a film that's difficult to fault. Uh, it, yes, it's got some weaknesses in story, particularly. Yeah, you have to really pick it apart. In, but get weaknesses, you know. Yeah, I think this is a, a really strong film, and I'd recommend it to Bond fans or anybody who likes good films, good acting, good action. Like this is nice film, fun, good way to spend two and a half hours. Yeah, I, I definitely agree. I would say right now, like. Um, I think compared to like to the later Craig films, it's definitely stronger in comparison to those. Um, I've always maintained recently that like Christopher McQuarrie's past two Mission Impossible films are almost better than the Bond films are nowadays. And I think it's because they're following that tradition that Casino Royale kind of started of bringing the spy film back into prominence and and, and putting a good effort into making a good movie mm-hmm. and not just some like Michael Bay action thriller. You know what I mean? Mm hmm. Yeah, especially in the, in the comparison era, in the comparison to like the modern spy film that began with the Bourne Identity, where kind of Casino Royale sort of mutated from, or not mutated, but kind of kick fired from, I, I suppose you could say. Hmm. Well, there we are. Casino Royale scored, done, and dusted. Let's have a chat now, shall we, about what Ian Fleming would think of this film. So BFG, what do you think? What do you think, think Fleming there, would there do? I think there would be at least a role in the in the grave for uh, just for the sake that Baccarat was was wasn't used and poker was. I think Fleming would object to that. I don't know that would be a role. I mean, if he didn't do a full role for Diamonds Are Forever, I don't think he's going to do a full role for this. Uh, okay, maybe a wiggle. I don't know. <laughs> maybe. maybe if we put a coin on the gravestone, it, it will kind of like. Uh, bounce it'll bounce a little bit <laughs> right maybe maybe not let's uh let, let's just get into it shall we what ian fleming would have thought about casino royale i think you're right i think maybe the switch from baccarat to poker would upset him a bit but this is a film built for modern times i don't think any yes. and poker really did go through a coming back to life resurgence resurrection in the late 90s it really did, and I think that they, they. I think it was a great choice to do the do the poker because that would make the poker sequence uh, in that film, which is a, uh, admittedly a slower. I'm not it saying is, that's yeah. a, a slower sequence in the film that modern audiences or casual audiences, I guess you could say, um, would you know they, they would be able to enjoy the scenes more because they could follow the poker. Mm. Baccarat, they would be like, "What the f is a shoe? What is this?" Why are they saying Sweevy all the time for? You know what I mean? Well, they would be as distant from it as they would any other casino scene. But because because the filmmakers like Fleming, like I mean, Fleming dedicated a whole conversation, a whole chapter of the book to explaining the rules because he needs his readers to get what's going on. So the drama is there here. 
it, he, you know, the filmmakers have to use a game that, like you say, a modern audience will get so that they understand the stakes. Because if they're watching 40 minutes, like it's one thing to watch a, a three minute clip of Bond in Thunderball or whatever film it is playing Baccarat. We don't need to really know what's going on to know he wins and, and takes advantage of the situation here. The win, the loss, the extended time spent at the table is so important that we need to know what's going on. And that's why we've got so many of these. And they are clunky. Let's, you know, it's not the actor's fault that they're asked to say it. But the screenplay basically teaches the audience poker, like the world of poker, you know, like, oh, now, like Mathis always talking to Evergreen about what's going on, you know, or talking to Vesper about like, now he needs to do this in order to bet that. And uh, he's called. (laughs) That means he has. Okay, thanks. Right. Like, you know, talk about Bond by numbers is poker by poker by screenplay yeah poker by screenplay for sure anyway. i want to add too is that if they're giving kind of an sas background instead of like a sophisticated naval background mm-hmm. for bond it makes more sense of it him does. playing yeah it does work yeah in the barracks of, of hereford you know p- playing poker with his mates as opposed to baccarat you know what i mean yeah totally well let me read a little bit then about the origin of this this is again as i've used in the past uh continue to use it for all the source material matthew parker's book on goldeneye it's a great book all about um not just fleming's jamaica but the creation of the bond stories as he wrote them there it all came out very fast poured onto the page Anne later commented that Ian wasn't very anxious to start, but once he'd begun, of course, he found himself enjoying it, and he finished the book in a great burst of enthusiasm. This first novel was finished at the latest on 18th of March, possibly even earlier, which meant an average of more than 2,000 words a day. Out of reach of the delicious cooling sea breeze, it must have become very hot inside shuttered Goldeneye, but the prospect of a refreshing dip in the bay would have been a great reward for a target reached. Just another thousand words. Fleming later declared that the main thing was to write fast and cursively in order to get narrative speed. It was fatal to start criticizing what you'd just written, he advised. Instead, you just had to keep going. Awful bits could always be corrected later. In fact, the manuscript of Casino Royale shows more subsequent changes than any other of his books. Almost all of the Bond books would be written at a similar rate, and sometimes it shows. For Casino Royale, however, Fleming clearly had key scenes well thought out before he sat down in front of his typewriter. The card game between Bond and Le Chiffre would remain, many books later, one of his finest creations. And I agree with that. I, I, th- I think that it would. I think, yes. that it, I think that it does. Just skipping ahead a little bit here. But while Casino Royale launches a recognizable Bond and a recognizable style, it remains somehow different from the rest of the novels. It is at times clunky in its exposition, has an unsatisfactory structure with an overlong coda after the gruesome climax of the action. But it also has a claustrophobic tension that isn't experienced again until the much later books. It's rawer and less polished than Bond novels later, and perhaps we should also, <clears throat> and as perhaps we should expect of a first attempt. But at the same time, it seems more nuanced and subtle than much of what would follow. For Raymond Chandler, it would remain the best Bond novel. The shadow of the real-life Burgess MacLean treachery that hangs over Casino Royale makes it perhaps the closest Fleming came to a Le Carre-style spy story. The plot addresses the disastrous infiltration of MI5, with the twist in the tale being the exposure of a mole at the heart of the Secret Service's Station S. We also have the American view on the newly revealed unreliability of the British Secret Service. When Bond meets Felix Leiter for the first time, he senses a certain reserve behind the American agent's charm. Quote, although he seemed to talk quite openly about his duties in Paris, Bond soon noticed that he never spoke of his American colleagues in Europe or in Washington, and he guessed that Leiter had held the interests of his own organization far above the mutual concern of the North Atlantic allies. Bond sympathized with him. 
More widely, Casino Royale tries to reflect those changed times of diminished British power. Bond needs to be bailed out by Leiter, his CIA contact, when the gambling goes astray. Leiter slips him an envelope containing 32 million francs labeled Marshal Aid. Bond is able to return the money later, but comments, That envelope was the most wonderful thing that ever happened to me. Talk about a friend in need. Similarly, Bond is in fact saved by a Russian deus ex machina, rather than by his own efforts, as would almost always be the case in later books. But, however diminished the status of Britain and its intelligence services, Casino Royale still depicts Britain in general, and Bond in particular, as being at the front line of the Cold War against the Russians, just as Buchan's Richard Haney had once been against the Germans. Even though the action takes place in France, French operative Mathis is clearly subservient to Bond. The American Felix Leiter is also under the orders of the British. As Leiter confides, Washington's pretty sick, we're not running the show. End quote. I mean, there's a lot more Parker writes on that Genesis, but I figure that's enough to set up a little sample of the novel itself. Any any comment on any of that? I, I thought it was nice that that book touched into what Jeff was saying earlier about the um, infiltration of MI6. Yeah, Guy Burgess and, mm. and whatnot. Yeah, I think that worked out quite well, actually. <laughs> well, the the part of Casino Royale that I chose to, to that I chose to share with you and the listeners today is a part earlier in the story. It's not from the it's not from the game. It's not from the uh, the win as such, and it's also not from that seminal torture scene at the end, or indeed the letter that Vesper says. It is, however. Uh, earlier in the story, a scene of some importance, I think. She has just finished explaining to Bond her story, okay? Waiters are arriving over dinner, bringing caviar, the hot toast, you know, there's these nice details of food that Fleming puts in here in the story. And they're going to have a conversation now where Vesper explains, you know, how she got involved in all of this. And you get really nice character points in each. This is not a long section, just a couple of pages. But I think it uh, it's something a little bit different. Most people who know something about Casino Royale know about the importance of the game and know about the importance of uh, or that torture scene at the end. But this is something a bit different, so I hope you like it. Hmm. She finished her story just as the waiters arrived with the caviar. A mound of hot toast and small dishes containing finely chopped onion and grated hard-boiled egg, the white in one dish and the yolk in another. The caviar was heaped onto their plates and they ate for a time in silence. After a while, Bond said... It's very satisfactory to be a corpse who changes places with his murderers. For them, it certainly was a case of being hoist with their own petard. Mathis must be very pleased with the day's work. Five of the opposition neutralized in 24 hours. And he told her how the Munces had been confounded. Incidentally, he asked, how did you come in to this mixed-up affair? What section are you in? I'm personal assistant to head of S, said Vesper. As it was his plan, he wanted his section to have a hand in the operation, and if he asked M if I could go. It seemed it seemed only to be a liaison job, so M said yes, although he told my chief that you would be furious at being given a woman to work with. She paused, and when Bond said nothing, she continued. I had to meet Mathis in Paris and come down with him. I've got a friend who's Vendus with Dior, and somehow she managed to borrow me this. This is the dress that I'm wearing at the morning. Otherwise, I couldn't possibly have competed with all these people. She made a gesture towards the room. The office was very jealous, although they didn't know what the job was. All they knew was I was to work with a double O. Of course, you're our heroes. I was enchanted. Bond frowned. It's not difficult to get a double O number if you're prepared to kill people, he said. That's all the meaning it has. It's nothing to be particularly proud of. 
I've got the corpses of a Japanese cipher expert in New York and a Norwegian double agent in Stockholm to thank for being a double O. Pretty quite, probably quite decent people. They just got caught up in the gale of the world like that Yugoslav that Tito bumped off. It's a confusing business, but if it's one's profession, one does what one's told. How do you like the grated egg with your caviar? It's a wonderful combination, she said. I'm loving my dinner. It seems a shame, she stopped, warned by a cold look in Bond's eye. If it wasn't for the job, we wouldn't be here, he said. Suddenly, he regretted the intimacy of their dinner and of their talk. He felt he had said too much and that was only a working relationship. had been confused. Let's consider what has to be done, he said in a matter-of-fact voice. I'd better explain what I'm going to try to do and how you can help, which isn't very much, I'm afraid. Now, these are the basic facts. He proceeded to sketch out the plan and enumerate the various contingencies which faced them. The maitre d' supervised the serving of the second course, and then as they ate the delicious food, Bond continued. She listened to him coldly, but with attentive obedience. She felt thoroughly deflated by his harshness, while admitting to herself that she should have paid more heed to the warning of Head of S. He's a dedicated man, her chief had said when he gave her the assignment. Don't imagine this is going to be any fun. He thinks of nothing but the job on hand, and, while it's on, he's absolute hell to work for. But he's an expert, and there aren't many about, so you won't be wasting your time. He's a good-looking chap, but don't fall for him. I don't think he's got much heart. Anyway, good luck, and don't get hurt. All this had been something of a challenge, and she was pleased when she felt herself attracted and interested, and when she attracted him, as she knew intuitively that she did. Then at a hint that they were finding pleasure together, a hint that was only the first words of a conventional a, con a conventional phrase, he had suddenly turned to ice and had brutally veered away as if warmth were poison to him. She felt hurt and foolish. Then she gave a mental shrug and concentrated with all her attention on what she was saying. She would not make the same mistake again. Bond was explaining just how Baccarat is played. And so that's kind of, kind of a touch of Fleming's writing there in terms of character like he is he's, he's laying some groundwork there you can feel the pulpy though can't you you can feel the pulpiness of that oh oh definitely and it, and it, and if you compare you know Vesper from the book and Vesper from the film they're like two different people almost they, they totally are yeah there, there is that there's already a fragility and a weakness in this girl who's like oh I'm really interested in him but uh, does he like me? I think he likes me. Yeah, he definitely likes me. Well, I can't make that mistake because my boss said not. So this is the author giving you a very, uh, let's just call it what it is. You know, it's a very conventional masculine view of the girl who is attracted to the guy and needs to be yeah. the arm candy. But to, to, to Fleming's credit, she turns out to be a real, I won't say a real strong, powerful female character. She isn't. But she she has more depth than that by the time the novel ends. And you see that she had, she was more of a noir of, noir vixen wasn't she she definitely was yeah i'm not i'm not a femme fatale but a, no. a vixen's a good way to a good way to put it mm -hmm. um she's a, a tragic heroine on both that on both the book and the adaptation mm -hmm. so there you go there's a little bit about the uh the writing of the story and a little bit from the novel it's it's a good book it's a seminal text if you're going to read these you're going to start with it and it might not be your favorite novel, but it's certainly a good one. It's one that I've gained a bit more respect for uh, since we did our retrospective on all those books. Yeah, and, like you know how uh, people or people or should we say we say that if you know if you want to introduce someone to Sherlock Holmes, you give them Hound of the Baskervilles. Mm -hmm. To well, me, you, you say that. I say give them the Adventures, but you say that. Yeah. Okay, fine. Hound of the Baskervilles or the Adventures, I'll accept that. But for getting people in the Bond into Fleming's Bond in particular, Casino Royale is a great way to start. Yeah, it's the natural place to start and probably the most sensible. 
because yeah. the book the books do herald back not like a Harry Potter way, but they they do make connections to the earlier stories that it's quite helpful to get the the characters. Yeah, you, you get in the first couple of books that Smirsh kind of um, sweep, and then going into then the Blofeld sweep at, at the very end, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I will point out that you know we're talking about you know how the fragile woman that that masculine view that Fleming's trying to convey, and then you go to you go, you know you go to the train sequence in the film Casino Royale, and you know like. I'll be focusing on all, but all you know, like, 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 the Vesper's treat out almost indicates to Bond that she is objective, objectifying him, you know, as a modern woman. That's right. right? Yeah. yeah. And you don't get any kind of dialogue like, like that at all from a female perspective in a Fleming novel whatsoever. No, you really don't. Um, you get a little bit with Tiffany Case in Diamonds Are Forever. Yeah, I, I guess that's true. I'm, and like, you, I'm, I'm and just recalling do... that now. You do get a little bit uh, as well with, uh, oh, <laughs> I was just thinking of it. Um, the the terribly, the, just thinking about it, the terrible story, um, 007 in New York contains the character, oh, we call her a character, she's not a character, the name Solange. Oh, okay. I, I, Remember, I guess that's, that's where the that girl. Name, that's the girl who, comes from. yeah, that's the girl that Bond is meant to go see in, in uh, Central Park, but there's no there's no zoo in central park and that's like basically the story it's and it's some fucking scrambled egg recipe which is ridiculous <laughs> i mean that story that's not a story but yeah solange that that that's the only uh that's probably why they gave her that name hey to use a fleming name yeah absolutely yeah because of that because her character was definitely was not in the novel no do you well, do you think that the munces those 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 uh those secret those secret agents do you think that Obano and his men were kind of the stand-ins for those characters? I was wondering if you thought that too. Yeah, I totally thought that. I, I, I didn't really want to mention it before we got to this part because, you know, we hadn't talked about the story. But yes, I think so. It's funny because they because they, they pretty much like stood for Smirsh and as well as the Munces. It's kind mm-hmm. of funny, actually. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, I thought so. Because it was their money that the sheep was gambling with. Indeed. Yeah. And well, then whatever they're... we're... And the White's organization being the proto-specter that it was. Yeah, totally. Well, look, pal, that's it. Job done. Uh, are you interested to hear what our grandmother saw, thought of this film? Are you? Yeah, um, I'm. I'm going. I'm, I'm going to be quite surprised. I think because I think she hates Daniel Craig, doesn't she? Well, let's see, shall we? This is it. The interview with Granny O, our grandmother, the figure that got us into Bond in the first place. If you don't like family interviews or a good laugh with a 93-year-old woman, then fast forward 15 minutes to when we select a roulette. Hello, Granny O. Hi. Wanted to give you an opportunity to share your thoughts on Casino Royale. Yeah. I was... Uh, is that one of... Well, yeah, I guess so. <laughs> <laughs> I, I found it uh, hard to get into because I didn't know what they were trying to do uh, do in, in you know the, playing the cards against each other. And I certainly enjoy... What's his name? Daniel Craig. Mm-hmm. But that guy, uh, he played against. Yeah, Lashif. Yeah, he, he, I remember 
uh, you know, seen him in other films. Uh-huh. And he uh, he always plays that, that sleeping type. He does play that type of character often, doesn't he? Yeah. Do you like that actor? Yes, I did. Yeah, he's good. He's a good player. Yeah. And I I liked the, I liked the fact that his character had, you know, he he was motivated by desperation. I thought that was kind of unique for a Bond villain. Yeah. Well, he look at the money he had to pay back to the, the those. Um, yeah, the warlords. And. Played with with it at the card table, actually. That's right. But you know, I mean, you had to have something like ten million dollars to get in, didn't you? Yeah, yeah. It's I mean, it was just like the Blumenden Club, I bet. <laughs> oh, sure. <laughs> Fifty cents. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, gin rummy. Yeah. Well, I don't. I don't never ever play poker or play cards for money. It's one thing I always did. Well, you might. No, that's not true. I used to play with your grandfather, Frank, and he'd always win. Would and I, I'd have to pay him 50 cents. But if I won a game, he wouldn't pay me anything. Give it to me another, you know, the next time. Well, that, that sounds like a James Bond type of scenario. <laughs> Did you just say that you used to play crib, as in cribbage, for money? Yes. Uh, your father, grandfather, and I used to play crib all the time, every yeah. day. Yeah, crib is a great game. It's. Uh, it's one of my favorites. Yeah, I like it a lot. Mm-hmm. I haven't played for years, though. I don't know that it, it quite holds the suspense value that a James Bond film might need. It would be good to see a crib scene in a James Bond film. Yeah. <laughs> I wonder what he would use for pegs. <laughs> I don't know. I'm not sure, but... What a did, female. <laughs> what or did, take off... No, take off... No, that's... Um, poker isn't strip poker. That's right. Yeah, that that would have been a different movie. Yeah, <laughs> or a different game. A different game. What did you think of the casino scene? Did you enjoy it? No, not really. Really? Okay, I'm surprised to hear no, that. I I don't, I think I'm a, I'm more of an action person. Well, you would have loved the beginning. Am I right in saying that you would have liked the beginning yes. of this film? Yes, the beginning was spectacular. I was yeah. admiring the guy who was running away from him. Yeah. God, could that guy run? Oh, and yeah. Climb up, yeah. climb up those you know, girders and all the rest of it. It's quite incredible to jump. see. That was really uh, athletic. It was. And the whole thing was filmed very well, too, I felt. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and, but I didn't really didn't know what he was chasing him for. <laughs> well, he, he was a gentleman who had constructed a bomb. He had built a bomb. And... He was using... But wasn't that what he took out of his little bag after he caught him? That's right. And he used the, the cell phone to trace his connection. And it was he was basically a bomb maker, like a, like a lower echelon player in a much bigger system, you know? Okay. Yeah. But, but, but you know, Bond did a couple of good stunts there himself. Yeah, especially when he banged into that big girder. I, I thought he was going to break his neck. Where, when he jumped from one crane? Yeah, to, but yeah. He, he didn't land like the other guy did. He, no. he banged in with his chest, you know, and he just hung on for dear life. And the other guy landed like a cat, didn't he? Yeah. Very at home in his environment, moving like that. Yeah. Whereas Bond isn't so stealthy, he isn't so subtle, he isn't so, uh, you know, yeah, and, and he, But he never gave up either. 
No, he never gives up, and that's it. Just like you saw that mm. guy slide through the little crack and Daniel Craig's bond bursts through the wall. That's kind of, that's the filmmaker's way of saying, you know, he's not clean and he's not pretty, but he gets the job done. That's right, exactly. <clears throat> what, what did you make of Vesper, uh, the actress, Ava Green? Did you like her? Oh, yes, I liked her a lot. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I, uh, I've seen her in other films as well. Mm-hmm. And, uh, but she does a, um, a sultry job, you know, in, in James Bond film. Yeah, that's a good word, actually, sultry. I, I agree with that description. Yeah. Hmm. Okay, anything else? Well, is there anything else? About, like- if you want to, uh, uh, on a scale of one to ten, I would give it a, seven, a six or a seven. A six or a seven. So, uh, better than a couple of the recent ones we've seen, then. You enjoyed this more. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. But not your favorite, necessarily. No, 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 not really. But you do like Daniel Craig Granio, don't you? Yes, I do. I like I like him more so than the other ones, you know. Uh-huh. Other than ja- other than Sean. Well, I know, that's that's a different conversation altogether. <laughs> and I like Roger Moore. Yeah. Well, we haven't had and, a Roger the, Moore but, film the, yet. The Timothy Dalton one I didn't like. Hmm. I didn't. I didn't think he portrayed much, the James Bond that I liked at all. Okay. Now the big, the big Scotsman. You always call him a Scotsman. He's not a Scotsman. He's an Australian, but he was dressed in a kilt. <laughs> well, I didn't, I didn't know, but he portrayed as a Scotsman in the film. That's right. He? Yes, he was. Yeah. Well, uh, well, he wore a kilt anyway. He looked yes. gorgeous in a kilt. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> what do you like? What do you like most about Daniel Craig? Do you find him an attractive man? I, I like that power of his. He looks like he's he's mad about something all the time. He does. He has a pout. You're absolutely right. But, you know, a lot of people feel as though he's not an attractive-looking man. But, I, I mean, I think he's quite a striking individual. Oh, yeah. He, he, he sure he does. He, when you think of, of uh, the rest of the guys, mm-hmm. he's not a pretty he boy. does stand out. But he, when he took off his dick off his shirt, he really stands out. Oh, that yeah. That scene on the beach and, and uh, when the... Him coming out of the water, that classic shot, which is almost about yes, as classic that was great. Ursula Andress coming out of the water in Dr. No. Remember he, they cut the seat out of the chair? And that, that must have been terrible. <laughs> it, yes, it would have been terrible. But you had no problem watching him with his clothes off then? Not at all. Right. Not at all. Okay. Other than what they were doing to him. Well, I wonder if, um, if you recall... Remember when, when he had him in a chair and he said, and you were looking after your body? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. They, they, they really panned his, the, the frame, you know, which I thought made him look great even sitting in a chair. So he wasn't too muscular for you then? No, not at all. Oh, good. I'm glad to hear that. <laughs> I remember that... I, I don't like the... You know, all knotted up. <laughs> <laughs> Their muscles all twisted and torn and yeah, right. No, so he's he's the right amount of beef, is what you're saying. Yeah. Okay. He, he, he looks like he like he busting like sheep said, You you really looked after your body. Uh huh. What did you think of Felix Leiter, the American? Uh, CIA? And that was the first time. That was the first time he knew he met him, wasn't it? In the books, that's absolutely right. That's the first. Yeah, time he introduced himself. That's who. Yep. You know, they became good friends afterwards. They sure did. But that yeah. was not the feeling like that, that 
uh, is in the rest of the films. Well, there's many different Felix Leiters. I like him, you know, as what he was portraying. Yeah, I like him a lot, and he he's been in he's been the Felix in all of the films that Daniel yeah. Craig has starred in. Yeah, he, he they took all the credit, and, and Daniel got the money. That's right. Yeah, and he's he's okay with that. <laughs> that was the idea, wasn't it? That was the idea. Yeah, and it it that scene plays very similarly to the book where Bond has lost, and um, America backs him. They basically say to him, just as Felix did in the film, "You're a better gambler than I am. I think you can take him. I'll give you the money." And he was bleeding money. That's right. So we'll, I remember thinking, "What what does that mean?" But then I guess when you bleed, you're, everything is flowing. That's right. Yeah. Did you enjoy the bit in Venice? Well, set in Venice with the bank transfer and all of that stuff, and then the, of course the building um, falls into the uh, falls into the water and Vesper dies. Yeah. All well, how, how did you do that? Pretty great special effects, though, isn't it? Would that be all buildings that they were trying to they were going to do anyway? No, I think that was CGI. I'll have to ask Josh and Jeff. They'll they'll know the production spec on that, but I think it's uh, computer generated. Okay. Okay. Or computer-enhanced, at least. I'm not sure how much of it was real. The interior water scenes were obviously real, but the exterior, when you see the building, you know, sinking... But, but are all these buildings really on a platoon, uh, a platoon like that? So, yeah, a lot, of, a lot of the things in Venice are, are upheld with a pontoon because this, the city is, is under more and more water. The lagoon is rising. And that keeps it a heavy building like that? It's a... a, a Immersed? I'm not actually sure on the physics of the construction, but um, that might be something interesting that we could look into. Yeah. I, I, I do there was a lot of water canals over there, but I didn't realize that people build houses on each side of the road. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I've been to Venice twice. I'm quite fortunate to be there twice, and it, it is a remarkable And are you place. aware that you're walking on water? Yes, yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> God, I thought only Jesus could walk on water. <laughs> well, you've never met me, have you? No, dear, I, I haven't, but I always knew you were a good boy. <laughs> yeah, I don't know I'm that good. <laughs> you can't walk on water yet, eh? Keep yet. on trying. I will. So, you, you mentioned then that you would probably give this a 6 or a 7 out of 10, which is a, it's a fair mark, it's a good mark, and you did like the action, and you do like Daniel Craig, and you do like Ava Green uh, yeah. in the part of Vesper. But, and the chief. And the chief, I like too. him too. So what didn't you like? As an actor, I mean. What didn't you like then? I don't know, I, did this, I thought that, that it was very confusing, oh, maybe a half an hour before it, it got interesting. Mm-hmm. They make it difficult for you to understand it, don't they, really? They take the blueprint of the story and then they add on to it for practical. Yeah, to make it more interesting, I guess. Or whatever, but I lost the trend of thought anyway. You get some enjoyment from what you're watching, but, you know, you're still left with a lot of questions. And this film did have a lot of questions. Yeah, exactly. Did you find the love story between the two of them convincing? No, not really. <laughs> the story is, it's. it's I, I wonder if Ian Fleming is is listening in our discussions. <laughs> well, it's it's funny actually. One of the things that we do on the show, we talk about what Fleming would think and how far deviating the story of the film is from the original source material. And I think he would be happy with this film because it does stick very closely to 
a lot of the anchoring points of the original narrative, but it does play with some complex... Okay, what is the anchoring points? Well, for one, uh, Bond is sent to gamble against Lashif. Lashif is in debt to his creditors. He has been gambling with their money, and if he doesn't win, then he's going to die. They're going to kill him. That's right. So all of that is real. Lashif is that type of figure. Bond is sent to do that job. Felix Leiter does, in the book, does pay Bond to get back into the game after Bond loses. Vesper does double-cross James Bond. And all of so all but of that is real. Chief, but this for, she was controlling James Bond's money, wasn't she? So she refused to give him back. Well, that's right, because Bond needed to pay in again the second time. Because Bond and MI6 just presumed that she was working for the the Treasury. Oh, okay. And okay. so she was in control of the money, insofar as um, she she was the one set up to do the transfer. So actually, she had control of the money, but she had it for not for Bond, but for her boyfriend. That's right. Or yes, that's right. To pay off the uh, the guys who took her boyfriend. Yeah. Okay. She was essentially going to steal the money on behalf of the or- this criminal organization and take off anyway. And, and that's off. what all that scene was when she was in the uh, locked in the elevator. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. No, I can understand that. Now we can understand because it. But it's I wonder why she was saying, "I'm sorry. I'm sorry." Yeah. Well, th- that's why I think. Okay. Well, okay. I'll, now I, I'm definitely going to see it the second time because I got a different, you know, outlook on it. Well, I'm glad I could help you find that outlook. <laughs> <laughs> this is what the discuss is all about, isn't it? That's right, helping each other out. And I agree with you. It isn't a, it isn't a crystalline clear story. Right. I think the book is a good template for this film, and I think the film does respect the source material quite quite nicely. Yeah, well, the book, the book, as far as I was concerned, well, they read a beautiful story anyway. Mm-hmm. So I'll look at. I'm going to watch the movie again this afternoon. Good for you, and I'll call you on the weekend and let you know what your next mission is. Okay. Okay. <laughs> okay, darling. All right. Good talking to you. <laughs> Bye, sweetie. So there you go, Josh. There's our grandmother's view on the film. What do you think of that? Uh, very interesting. I mm. did not expect the six out of ten, to be honest. Neither I remember, did I. I, I remember was her really loving this movie, like when I watched it with her years ago. Oh, wow. So, yeah. But I think too that I do agree with her though that uh, that the plot is a little bit convoluted because I think of that extra addition and action sequences that they put in there. They pretty make it more confusing than it actually is. Mm. Yeah, well, that's our grandmother's two cents for what it's worth. Uh, I'm well, it's fairly certain not overall. Not confusing, but I would say just um, just a little ambiguous, I suppose. Yeah, and we did discuss that ourselves. You know, I mean, uh, yeah. fair enough. That's why I marked the story down a little bit. Um, maybe. But we agree with her. You know, on Daniel Craig and Ava Green and yeah, Nicholson, yeah. and so and and then the action sequences are spectacular. So mm-hmm. I think we're on the same boat there with her for sure. Yeah, she was certainly on point with that interview. Let me tell you, she definitely was. Mm-hmm. So. There we are. Now, all our reviews are in. Yours, mine, Jeff's, our grandmother's. And, of course, we talked about the critical reception of the film, which was overwhelmingly positive. Now it's time, isn't it, for us to welcome Jeff back in and roll the roulette table to see what our next episode is going to be all about. Giddy up. 
Let's move on now, Josh and Jeff, to this exciting moment of revealing our next film for episode nine. Have we got any yeah. wishes? Have we got any ideas? Well, I'm guessing it's probably going to be a Roger Moore. It's got to be a Roger Moore film. If Smart it, money. If it's a Craig or a Brosnan, I would be incredibly surprised, and I would, I would, I would emit a derisive snort. Well, let's find out what happens, shall we? Inside Wheel is spinning. Yeah. Expecting a big return on this one. You sense the sweat on each of your palms. Right? Mm-hmm. There's a lot. <laughs> here we are, here we are, here we are. Rolling, bumping, rolling, bumping. It is not wanting to settle, gentlemen, this one. Not wanting to settle. Wow. Guys, <laughs> I can hardly believe it. It's Red 23. Skyfall. Skyfall is the next <laughs> film. Oh, man, I'm glad I didn't bet on this. Yeah, Red 23, as, uh, wow. as true to life as I am here. Man, the, the roulette wheel does not like, uh, <laughs> you know. It doesn't like variety. <laughs> that was my derisive sort. Sor- 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 did, did, did you hear it? It, it yeah. really doesn't want to leave Craig alone, does it? Nope. <laughs> well, there we go. Skyfall will be our next film in two or three weeks' time when we come back here to discuss oh. it. Well, now, you know, Roger Moore, we're, yeah, fine. We haven't got to any Roger Moore films yet, but maybe, maybe the wheel likes Roger Moore. I think so, because I think we're, we're going to have like a Roger Moore marathon, I think. <laughs> yeah, but it's not going to be in order, is it? No, it's not. Oh, this is great fun. I do enjoy the random elements of all of this. <laughs> that was funny. <laughs> the, what, the, the WTF-ness of it is quite amusing. All right, so there we go. Uh, Skyfall's on the way. 